You're listening to episode 155 of The Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. <sighs> I miss the old days, guys, when comic book characters had, you know, uh, anatomically incorrect figures, fingers and toes, instead of whatever drivel is coming out from the X-Men book th- books these days. Oh... <sighs> I hear you, man. Uh, I, I like my Captain America's busty. Yeah. <laughs> Remember when comics used to be comics? Listen, here's the thing I've never believed about superheroes is where do they put all their stuff? Yeah. I, I demand comics with pouches. I want to yeah. see every single pocket these guys could possibly have. Yeah. Can we make comics great again? Yikes. Mm. Mm, you killed the bit. <laughs> <laughs> one uh, day, comic books would be great again. This is one of the more relevant intros that Phil's ever done. We just <laughs> spent a good 20 minutes before the show discussing <laughs> one Rob Liefeld. I, for one, am a fan. Just jokes. Uh, it's just funny because... Uh, he made a comment recently on Twitter about how how some powers of of X and ten, I guess, are um, drivel. They're you know they're they're slow and smoking mirrors. Yeah, smoking mirrors. <laughs> um, I love that Mysterio imprint. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a, a little bird. bit. Yeah. It was a yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think that Rob Liefeld gets a lot of flack that's undeserved on some level. Um I mean, look, whenever you can you can be 50 plus years old and be like the joke of comics, well, he's he's not the joke of comics. The joke of comics is uh Me. what's what's his, well, you're not in comics. Uh, Scott what's Lobdell. his name? Not Scott Lobdell. Trudeau. Jesus. This is no, just the point no, where everybody makes it. guesses and throws shade, huh? Stop it. Who's the, <laughs> the actual joke of comics? He's Comics Gate. Oh, oh, oh. Richard, Richard Meyer. No. EVS? Yes, it's not that guy. Ethan Van Scriber, yeah. I believe it is. Oh, my God. Can, can, I, I, th- I, I think we're on the same level. I think we're, we're both talking about the same thing. Well, when you hear about what happened at, at Comic-Con involving one EVS... I think you might change your mind. Yeah, so oh, let me, let me paint a little picture for you, Kale. So this this story comes from a friend of the show. Um, this story comes from no one. It doesn't matter. Just okay. just tell the story. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Hold on. They didn't. They didn't tell the world. They told us. Feel feel, okay. feel free to DM that to me though. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so. A friend of the show saw one EVS go and uh, show off some of his work to a few, um, we'll say, senior comics professionals who shall remain nameless. And, uh, like, as soon as he walked away, they just started trashing his book and, like, threw it on the ground. (laughs) Man. Yep. Because he's a fucking clown. So, uh, yes. So, Robert Liefeld is certainly not at that level but you know he gets he gets memed on pretty hard and uh even then he puts out major x and this thing does gangbusters 
I don't even think I've ever read a Rob Liefeld comic before. I went and bought Major X. Uh, <laughs> it did tremendously well. This guy is Teflon when it comes to sales. Uh, yeah, he's he's cool. Uh, he did an interview with us. I have no beef with Rob Liefeld. We're blocked for whatever reason on Twitter, but hey. <laughs> so it's not it's not like he's going to hear this. No, no, certainly not. Certainly not. He could give he 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 couldn't give any less of a of a of a crap about what we think of him. But hey, like I said, I'm a fan. Uh so before we get into everything, we have so much to talk to you guys about. But I want to let you know where you can find us online. Of course, we are the Comics Pals. You can find all of our content on all different podcast hosting platforms. Just type in the Comics Pals on whichever one you want to listen to us on. Most likely we're there. If we're not, let us know and we'll get there. We are at the Comics Pals wherever your social media is sold. Uh, you can write to us at thecomicspals at gmail.com. And we are on YouTube where you can... Uh, of course, youtube.com slash comicspals. You can make sure to like like the videos, comment, subscribe. We've been putting up our New York Comic Con interviews. And uh, we really, really, really appreciate all the interaction, all the feedback across SoundCloud, across Reddit, across YouTube. Uh, it's been fantastic. So if you're a new listener who found us through those interviews or... Uh, if you're a regular listener who you know enjoys what we've been putting out, we really, really appreciate it. Um, make sure you guys are giving us those those uh, five-star ratings and reviews and all that stuff. It really helps us out a lot. And uh, again, thank you so much. Yeah, and thanks for the creators who took the time to talk with us, too. You know? Oh, hell yeah. It's been Absolutely. A, it's been a great week for the comics, pals. Thank you for letting us chase your coattails. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> All right. I mean, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> hey, man. Quid pro quo, okay? Sure. <laughs> but not in the case of Robert Kirkman. That's definitely. He just gave us a bump. That's the rub, yeah. <laughs> and, and we got a lot more stuff coming out, baby. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever you see there at the moment, unless you're listening to this weeks in the future is not the end so check back daily uh we'll have plenty of interviews not just interviews but um some other fun stuff yeah yeah so be on the lookout keep your eyes peeled absolutely go click the notification bell yeah that too make sure you guys are are made aware of when we're actually posting this stuff i'd hate for you to miss out so let's jump into the pulls uh the pals pulls from kale we've got the goddess mode trade yeah, so this is I gotta be the last of the the Vertigo stuff uh, that's gonna be put out, right? This was Zoe Quinn's book with uh, Robbie Rodriguez. Uh, I've been real pumped about this one, um, so glad it's finally out in trade. So I'll read it. That's awesome. Uh, I don't even know what this is about. Uh, honestly, at this point, I don't remember either. <laughs> it was a it was a big deal when it came out, uh, but I don't 
dragged Recall. violently into a secret world of monsters, magic, and metadata, Cassandra is asked to join the group of superpowered girls who saved her in their fight against the mysterious demons. But spelt like cool, like D A E. Oh, like a like an email demon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get it. Nice. I get it. Nice. I see what you did there. All right, and then you also chose Golger Trade. Hopefully, I said that right. I hope you said that right too. So this is from uh, Ken Gehring. Um I I actually don't know anything about this, uh, but it's a a new um, fantasy title um, from Image. Uh, so I'm really excited to hopefully dig deep in another uh, another headlopper type series. So the plot synopsis for this one is. Uh, among the floating islands of Altera, deep underground, the mystical creature Gogur sleeps. But above ground, trouble brews as the soldiers of Damus invade the land and impose their will on the people of Altera. Now, Armano, uh, young... Oh, oh, idiot. God, Caleb. <laughs> <laughs> now, Armano... A young student of the natural arts must awaken Golger and begin his quest to discover the nature of the thread and uh, the nature of the threat and fight to preserve the culture of Altera. All one take. Good job, Kale. <laughs> <laughs> Warts and all. Kale gets uh, the job done. Wards and all. Hey. All right. Oh damn. Can't spell ward without on war. <laughs> On Phil, we've got uh, Superman Smashes the Clan, number one. Finally. Yeah, folks. Uh, we've been kind of uh, pumping this for a while. Uh, this is uh, Jean, Lin, uh, Jean Loon Yang and uh, Gariru's uh, story on how uh, Superman defeated the Ku Klux Klan back in the 40s during the Adventures of Superman uh, radio drama uh, where uh, a writer named Stetson Kennedy... Uh, went undercover what and a infiltrated cool name. the Ku Stetson, yeah. Stetson Kennedy. He infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan, took everything he learned, all the secrets and stuff, and uh, put it in uh, uh, writing format and tried to sell it to the radio and different uh, journalist publications at the time. No one would bite. The only people that would take it were the Adventures of Superman producers who were desperate for his stories. And it had a quantifiable, quantifiable impact on clan uh, membership numbers that then plummeted. So this is a three-part series. Uh, of course, Gene Lanang uh, wrote uh, Superman uh, during, uh, I want to say, the New 52 era. Maybe it was around uh, DCU. Uh, and more famously yeah. did uh, uh, the Chinese Superman book that Pete and I both like, New Superman. Yep. Um, so yeah, this is really exciting. Um, I love kind of historical fiction stuff, or I guess like historical comic book stuff. So, uh, you'll have to check this out. I'm, I'm checking it out. Very cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll pick this up too, I think. The art looks really cool. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen it. I haven't. Yeah, it looks it, very retro. It, it looks a bit, uh, it looks a bit like a almost polished Max Fleischer Superman, if I yeah. if I recall correctly. Okay. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, I'm pulling it up now. And, um... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pete, you should take a look at it. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling it up right now. 
12. Oh, yeah, dude. Ooh, I love the look of that. So this you, is yeah. so good. Yeah, so, folks, uh, if you've ever watched Max Fleischer Superman cartoons, which are public domain at this point, you can watch them on YouTube. Uh, they're very easily accessible. Uh, this has a similar look. Um, yeah. Especially yeah. The, the suit design. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, he's he's wearing the, that that 1940s uh, Fleischer suit where he's got the black behind the S on the emblem. Yeah. Oh man, this is cool as hell. Um. So yeah, it's a great story about how to me this is this is like a quintessential example of how uh, media can really impact real life and Superman being uh, the personification of of kind of hope and the American dream. Uh, actually impacting in, in, in a positive way uh, a lot of hatred that uh, permeates throughout the country. So it's the uh, power of comics, the power of media, and three issues. Very cool. So Pete chose Life is Strange number nine. Yeah, so I've talked about this comic a couple times <clears throat> on the show, uh, and I've really been enjoying it. I have fallen a bit behind because it's super I, I don't think it's like very successful um but i imagine the trades are selling pretty well because like i can almost never find single issues even when i go on the day they come out because it's like they're only ordering a handful of copies so i've missed one or two um so i'm now just waiting for the trades and volume two's trade uh which collects um i think until right before number nine is coming out in uh early november so i'm very much looking forward to that and, uh, yeah, I just want to keep this on people's radar because I know a few of our listeners are fans of the uh, the series. So uh, check it out. It's been a good ride. Nice. I chose uh, Something is Killing the Children, number two. The first issue really, really was impressive. This is by uh, James Tinian and Werther Del Adera, who I've never heard of before, but is doing tremendous work on on art with this book. Um, I, I, I think everyone should buy this. I really do. It's a horror book, but it, it definitely plays things pretty close to the chest, and that works really, really well in horror. And obviously, you know, children as protagonists, it has a lot of the things that you would assume you would see in a horror book, especially one called Something is Killing the Children. But there's something about the way that uh, Tinian is is sort of piecemealing the information out across just one issue that hooked me. And so um, very impressive stuff. I've been waiting for the second one ever since the first one dropped. So I'm excited for this. And I think if you are feeling like you want some horror comics, which you should because it's October... Um, this is definitely a book to pick up. And then all of us chose X-Men number one, Dawn of X. We're going to be reviewing Powers number six here in a few. Uh, obviously, we are still way on the X-Men hype train, and so we're going to be reading that when it drops and reviewing it for the show. So very hyped for X-Men number one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, uh, on that oh, Rob, Rob Liefeld, Rob Liefeld, he's obsessed with Absolute opinion. Carnage, and at first I was like, okay, dude, but then I actually like read it, and I think I'm obsessed too. Ryan Stegman's art in that book is some of the best stuff I think I've ever seen. It's mind-blowing. 
So uh, worth worth picking up for that alone, honestly. Donnie Cates is doing fine, but Ryan Stegman is is on another level. Hell yeah, right. yeah. I, I I we mentioned this at the con, but one thing I think that's really uh, great about the symbiote characters is that they really lend themselves to uh, diversity of just shapes and designs for artists to go nuts with. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. And that is something that Ryan is playing with heavily. Uh, different characters have been uh, been uh, uh, taken over by the symbiote within Absolute Carnage. And the designs that he's come up with for them are really, really cool and dynamic. Um, it, it just, it's just so, it's just such a, such a vibrant comic. Uh, it's just it's just beautiful. Like I I, I really implore nice. you to take a look at the uh, the inside of that book. It's it's crazy. Ooh. Uh, let's, speaking of crazy, let's talk about Joker. <laughs> let's talk about the guys. Crazy... We live in a society. <laughs> let's talk about the crazy success of the Joker. Uh, Do you think he's just going to win on three million dollars opening weekend? That's <laughs> is, that, is that a lot? Yeah. Uh, so it's an well. R-rated movie. It hasn't come out in China yet, and it's October, which normally is not the best time to release a movie that you expect to do, you know, the biggest of numbers. Sure. Um. So it, it it's enough that it's the biggest opening for October ever. Beating out oh. the previous holder of the title, which was Venom, at eighty million. Damn. Yeah. Huh. Uh, and it's it's broken all sorts of records. I'm not even going to go into all of them, but it has like the best Monday, um, the lowest uh, uh, fall off from people going to see the movie from one weekend to Monday. Uh, this weekend, it's projected to make another fifty million. So it's just it's just it's a juggernaut. Uh, Todd Phillips had this to say about the success of the movie when it was declared number one. Thank you to everyone for showing up. It's been a bumpy ride, but reading your feedback and feeling all the love makes it all worth it. Hashtag Joker is everywhere. So we Don't reviewed like that. It. <laughs> we, we reviewed it, and uh, we you know we had different feelings on it. Um, not all of us enjoyed it. But uh, it's safe to say that audiences are showing up for this movie. Does that surprise you guys? Not really. Not really. I no, think, yeah. I think on the but, same level as, like, a Batman film, you know, when you have a character as synonymous with someone like Batman, I, I think a Joker movie was always going to be crazy popular, no matter what you did with it, really. Yeah. And I think when you couple that with the fact that there is a controversy around it, that also helps because I think a lot of people, like, you know, as as many people as there are who, you know, we've talked about in previous episodes of the show who are going to write it off from the beginning based on, you know, um, their feelings about, you know, whether it should or shouldn't exist or that whole conversation that's existed around this film. There are a lot of people who, with that in mind, will want to go see it for themselves and have an opinion on it, you know, because 
um, whether you like it or not, it's it's what do you guys uh, a movie think? that is is definitely causing uh, a lot of conversation. You, there's been a lot of I've seen this kind of posited. Do you think that the controversy, while it does exist, is also engineered as a method to promote the film, kind of guerrilla marketing? I don't. I don't think it's intentional. I think that's a um, natural side effect of it, though. Like that that sort of thing certainly <clears throat> happens. Uh, outrage marketing is like you know a very like hot thing right now. But I think that for that to be the case, you have to believe that there's either like a mass conspiracy that started it, or that it was you know, uh, created with the intent of doing that. And I, I don't think that's the case. I think just by the nature of what the film is and what it wants to, how it wants to position itself in relation to the things it talks about kind of makes it a natural lightning rod for that conversation, which leads to that sort of outrage marketing. I, I think this, this, the way this movie has been talked about in the media might be the most disgusted I've ever been with the conversation around a movie. No one can tell me that the media doesn't want a mass shooting the way they've talked about this movie. Mm. It's really horrible. I I believe that. And it's, you know, it's it's screwed up to say, but I really do believe it. Because every article is talking about, oh, uh, there were some shady people at the showing Mm. of the Joker. Mm. Uh, the military is prepping for a sh- mass shooting at the Joker, you know, yeah. and it's it's this constant reminder that there could be a mass shooting when you go see this movie and nothing has happened. And they're grabbing any morsel, any little thing that could be something and they're plastering it all over every website. Why are they doing this? What? It's, it's interesting because when I drove up to New York for New York Comic Con, uh, a friend that we were, I was traveling with to New York um, talked about how uh, he was actually nervous about seeing the movie because that was in the back of his head. Of course. And it was put there by the media. It, it, you know, this, this doesn't – that, why is that the way to talk about a film? I don't, I don't necessarily agree that it was – put there by the media i you know it wasn't that long ago that the the aurora shooting happened and not just the aurora shooting any sure, shooting. Sure, sure, sure. do you know that the aurora shooting had nothing to do with batman or the joker at all i mean sure. the dude was dressed as a clown and called himself no, he the wasn't. joker no, he wasn't. That those are he, yeah, those he are lies. He wasn't dressed as a clown. Yeah, th- I'm not saying you're lying. I'm saying that those are things that the media reported that were false. Where it comes from was there was a police officer um, who misreported uh, what happened based on his account. It was a guy. He was he was wearing something, but it wasn't like a clown. He outfit. had he had red hair. That yeah. he had died. I forgot what his reasoning was, but it had it had nothing at all to do with the Joker. It was some other HO's, like, crap reason. It, it, it was a, I just read about this the other day, but it, it had nothing to do with the Joker. He never even mentioned. He the chose Joker. the Dark Knight. He chose the Dark Knight because it was a popular film that was out in two thousand exactly or twenty twelve because it was the Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, Sorry. Sorry. but yeah, that was oh. a pure coincidence that he shot up a a, a Batman movie. 
Point being, though, that's still the popular narrative. So sure, whether that's is. true or not, that is... Hold, hold on, let me finish. Sure, sure. That, is, that is the popular narrative, whether it's true or not. Sure. The... Sorry, so let me get myself back on track here. So, uh, I don't, I don't think that it was put there by the media, you know, whatever that case may be. But I think it was pushed and exacerbated by the media for sure. That's fair. Having the the splinter of the thought in your mind is one thing. Being bombarded. Yeah. Every single day. Yeah. By this idea that there could be a mass shooting at the movie, not only does it heighten the fear of everyday moviegoers for absolutely no reason, but has anyone ever thought about the fact that maybe it's putting it in the mind of someone who might be willing to do that? And I, I think that's part of it. I, I, I genuinely do. I, I mean, I, I think they want it to happen so they can get their money and get their views and their. And their ratings. It's, it's, I, that's it's that's the nature of the beast. It sucks, but like that's that's why the news is the news. They need something to report on. Pete, what do you think of all this? Yep. It's it. Uh I mean, it's tough because I think I think that um I think there's a fine line between what Sean and, and Killer are, you know, putting out there and the truth. Because I don't, I don't necessarily think that um, that like the media is trying to manufacture uh, a mass shooting with the way that they're reporting on the issue. Um, I think that the media is trying to capitalize on that fear uh, because ultimately, to your point or to the point that you two are making, right? Like we, when we live in a twenty-four hour news cycle, like there's got to be something to talk about, and everyone's talking about this movie right now. It's the biggest movie out right now. It ties into um, our kind of underlying fear about mass shootings in this country. And it's also positioned itself, uh, whether intentional or not, in the center of a culture war, right? Of there is, and I'm not saying that this is the truth, but I think in the media's perception, right, there are kind of two broad groups of, of reactions to this film, and you don't need to look any further than the way people talk about it on Twitter, right? Like, jokingly, but um, that there are, you know, the angry incels that love this movie and are placing it up on a pedestal, and then there are, you know, the extreme liberal position that hate this movie and don't think it should exist and blah, 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 right? So I think that, with all that in mind, like when you write a story like that, it's something that's going to get clicks. It's something that's going to get attention and it's going to get shared because people can take it. And if they agree with it, they can share it and be like, look, this validates my opinion. And if they disagree with it, they can share it and say, I can't believe these fucking, you know, cucks said this, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. Like it's, it's still feeding the beast, right? You're still circulating the message or the article or whatever. And like at the end of the day, like for a lot of news orgs, like that's the goal, you know? Um, so that's, that's kind of where I come down on it is I don't necessarily believe that it's, uh, that it's done in an effort to whip someone up to go do something like that. But to the point that you're making, like if it did happen, you know that they would plaster that person's face all over the place and turn it into a moment in the media because like 
in the 24-hour news cycle, like, you're on the treadmill, and you're always on the treadmill. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't – I wouldn't say that I have quite that cynical of you, but I also um, – the mainstream media has done too many things like that in recent memory that I could point to for me to not acknowledge that that is at least somewhat at play here. Yeah, disgusting tactics uh, in my opinion. I, I want to read really quick something that uh, Michael Moore, of all people, had to say. Just because I think it was pretty pertinent. Uh, and, and uh, you know, he, he basically says he got to see the movie and he he talks about, you know, how people have said that, you know, we shouldn't go see this. We should, you know, not have movies like this in our society and, you know, things of that nature. And he said, I would suggest the opposite. The greater danger to society may be if you don't go see this movie. Because the story it tells and the issues it raises are so profound, so necessary, that if you look away from the genius of this work of art, you will miss the gift of the mirror it is offering us. Yes, there's a disturbed clown in that mirror, but he's not alone. We're standing right there beside him. Joker is no comic book movie. The film is set somewhere in the 1970s Gotham, New York City, the headquarters of all evil. The rich who rule us, the banks and corporations whom we serve, the media which feeds us a daily diet news they think we should absorb. Uh, and uh, he goes on to say some other stuff that's not pertinent to this conversation. So, yeah. It sounds like uh, he sits with uh, Camp Sean and uh, Phil. Yes, he sure does. Um, although, to be fair, you know, I don't think anyone on this panel is really disagreeing. Uh, yeah, I didn't have to, I don't have to like the movie sure. to agree with what he said. I just wanted to <laughs> rub salt in the fact Someone... that Sean and Phil are correct about the movie. Jesus, sure, sure. Uh, good for you, good so, for you, buddy. Someone who happy is for you. all the way pissed about this movie, but not in any way to do with anything we've talked about, is <laughs> Jared Leto. Oh wait, did this no. movie damage him? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Oh yes. my god! I fucking. I mean, I mean, yeah, financially, probably, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, the Hollywood Reporter put out an article that mostly was talking about Martin Scorsese and what his involvement with Joker really was. Uh, long story short, with that, he dropped out of the movie uh, as a producer personally, but had his associate who works with his production company take care of what he would have been taking care of. Uh, so he was a producer in name only. Um, yeah. So the real story for our purposes is that apparently Jared Leto was alienated and upset when Warner Brothers uh, decided to make a Joker movie that did not include him. Uh, I think it's pretty objectively true. Feel free to argue if you don't agree that Jared Leto's Joker is the least liked of all the Jokers that we've had on screen so far. Yeah, and, and I, I don't even necessarily know that the, you know, it's justified. He didn't get to do anything. <laughs> I, I, but, sure, uh, but, but you know, I, yeah, you that's know, not to argue, argue people, the point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All the other Jokers people like, at the very best, you can say Jared Leto's Joker is polarizing. Right. I guess. Um, and, and, and 
Because even even Joaquin Phoenix, people that didn't like the movie were like, well, he was really good. And at the beginning, there were all these plans for for the Joker. Uh, There was going to be a Joker solo movie starring Jared Leto. There was going to be a Harley Quinn Joker movie. Obviously, Suicide Squad 2, if it had happened the way... Uh, it was originally supposed to happen without James Gunn, probably would have included uh, Jared Leto's Joker. So we were about to be inundated with this guy. And then every single one of those plans fell through. None of those movies are happening. The Joker solo movie happened, but it happened without him. Uh, The Harley Quinn Joker movie became a Harley Quinn Birds of Prey movie. And... um, Suicide Squad 2 doesn't have the Joker in it. So, uh, Jared Leto, the biggest loser of the past two weekends, unfortunately. I I, I, I wondered Kale's point, because I think what Kale said is the most curious. Do you think that this kind of sullied reputation of Jared Leto's Joker is deserved? Uh, of, of his no. Joker? Uh, yes, I don't think it's necessarily deserved, but I also don't think he... Because of that, I don't. I, I don't think he got the chance. Yeah, if you you haven't seen Suicide Suicide Squad, right, Phil? Okay, I have well, not. No, this is before I was forced to see movies <laughs> I didn't want to see. Oh yeah, fuck! I guess it was. <laughs> he, I, to me personally, uh, he wasn't the problem with that movie. No. Um, I didn't love it. I, Go ahead. But it wasn't that bad. It wasn't. No, it wasn't that bad. You could have redeemed it with a second appearance i mean by all accounts there was a lot more footage that was shot that included him that they didn't use and i mean maybe it was worse i don't know but uh i think i could have done with he should have been the villain of the movie in my Mm -hmm. opinion Mm -hmm. didn't need enchantress and the stuff the stuff that like was the problem with the film for me was that it was a, a larger like editing problem yeah. uh for as i recall anyway it's been forever but the the film itself had a lot of sort of uh linear narrative problems even just in terms of introducing the characters and keeping the story straight and and so you know when you had the joker it was two or three small scenes um so it just didn't it didn't amount to anything noteworthy, so he wasn't. Re- he didn't. He didn't even get the chance to be good or bad. I'm gonna. Gotcha. I'm gonna come out hard and say that the flack against him is deserved, um, because I think you compare okay. that. That fair enough, right? He didn't have much to work with in those movies. I still think his performance was not very good, um, and not all of that boils down to like his costume and the look, which I think are a big part of what people don't like. Um, I was not impressed with his performance and compare the amount of time he's on screen to, you know, a a number of other like minor characters in these like malign DCU, DCU movies. And like, there are salvageable performances in bad films. Um, I just, this, I, I did not like his portrayal of the Joker. I don't, frankly, I don't like Jared Leto. Like, by all accounts, he's a creep and an asshole. And that's, that's, that's also where I come from, too, is he's a a creep and an asshole. And when, when you're, when you're asking, that's why I'm trying to be specific about, about what we're asking, because 
Do I think the flack against sure. Jared Leto is worth it? Yes, absolutely. That guy's a dick. Yeah. But his Joker actually, to me, you know, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Uh, okay. I, I mean, the script he was given was trash, but yeah. what he did with <laughs> yeah. it, I thought was fine. I don't, I don't really, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't see yeah. an issue. Yeah. Uh, I, honestly, I think, I think the opinion that most people have of his character is weird, considering how long he was on screen. Mm-hmm. Like, geez. Um. It's a charisma vacuum, though. It's like every time he was on screen, I was like, "I don't, I'm not enjoying this." I mean, but... in an o- in an overall not good movie either. He's he's normally a very good actor. I mean, his performance in Dallas Buyers Club won him an Academy Award for a reason. I mean, Suicide Squad won an award. There you go. <laughs> that that's a different award, but fair. <laughs> the narrative around Suicide Squad needs to change, and Kale and I are leading the charge. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying, man. Like when it's like, oh, I feel like alienated and hurt. Like it's like, okay, man. Well, maybe they didn't want to work with you because you talk shit about the studio and like famously mailed your yeah, like yep. coworkers uh-huh. animal parts and weird. Sh- like yep. he sounds like he's a nightmare to work with, yep. whether he's a good actor or not. So if yeah, like, if that- if that's the conversation we're going to start having, then, yeah, I'm going to get right on sure. this shit train. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that's probably something we'll never know, though. Um, however, with all this Joker oh. hype, another DC supervillain is being uh, talked about for a potential solo movie. And now we're talking Boy. about Lex Luthor. Honestly? Damn. <laughs> there there honestly isn't much more to uh to say um i'll just leave it at that i guess <laughs> uh, we, uh, allegedly according to cheatsheet.com which is a eh, you know website as far as reliability they're saying that uh, they have a source named mikey sutton uh, who is credible and has leaked things before um he says on his facebook invite only page geekosity uh, that Warner Brothers is considering making a movie about Lex that would essentially be a rise to power in a way. It would showcase his his early years, uh, his years as a as a business man, a business tycoon, and then becoming the president and what Lex's presidency would look like. My favorite part about this story is that it, if true, it proves what we knew was going to happen they're going to take the dc and warner brothers are going to take the exact wrong lesson from joker and apply it to every villain in the dcu ever and it's going to ruin a whole other thing what do you think is the the improper lesson here that they're learning that would apply to this movie oh these assholes yeah they'll take a they'll take another villain movie sure who cares we got villains we got thousands of it let's make a black manta movie yeah, shit. Let's get think, Ryan Reynolds back and get him to do the the other Green Lantern, the the yellow one. I, I don't. I don't think that. <laughs> that's, that's. I like his executive talk. Though. The other Green Lantern, the yellow one. Uh, yeah, I yeah. don't think that suggesting a Lex Luthor movie is on the level of that, though, because Lex is a character that certainly can can carry. A, a two-hour narrative in his own right, and if you look at the DC villains that have had 
their own story. Joker and Lex yeah. are the ones who have the most successful and popular ones of all time. Um, I think Kale's fear stems from the narrative of, of the success of Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy spinning off the darker-toned, edgy DC movies. And his fear is that with the success of Joker, it'll spin off uh, a larger series of villain movies that are not as good as the Joker was. You know what I mean? Thank, thank you for explaining my joke. Let me explain it more. Uh... <laughs> well, I, I think I think there's a salient point there, though, Kale, because like in both the case of the Dark Knight trilogy and um, the Joker, they were both films that were. Although I hesitate to call uh, him an auteur, I guess, but you know, they're 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 director-driven films, mm-hmm. right? They were films that were brought to a studio, and it's like this is the vision I have for this character, and this is what I want to do with it, and you know, they signed off on it and you had this singular vision kind of carrying that idea through to fruition. And, you know, I think that's why those are being well-received or why, you know, they were well-received. Whereas when you just take away the lesson of, oh, right, good, villain movie make money. Like, that's not, we don't know that this is the same thing, right? That, like, someone had this idea for a Lex movie and that's why it's getting made. Right. It seems more like, oh, the Joker broke a box office record? Let's do Lex Luthor now. Yeah. And that's um, concerning, I guess, but whatever. I I think Sean makes a good point with, like, Luthor and, and the Joker are the characters that DC have that can kind of carry a, something that has a substantial enough film. Um, my concern, I think, is what they would do with it. The idea of Luthor becoming president isn't foreign to the comic books. It, you know, it happened. My concern is, oh, you know, Joker makes some some greater societal points about the neglect of, you know, uh, mental health care and, and, and stuff like that, which it does, and it, it definitely tries to at least. My concern is a Luthor movie is like, we got to make a movie about Donald Trump. And that would just be so shit. <laughs> that, yeah, I'm not terribly interested in Luthor as a Donald Trump stand-in. I think that's goofy. I think, yeah. I, I think if it was a film that sort of captured uh, uh, Jesse Eisenberg's Luthor and like uh, like I didn't see Justice League or Batman v Superman because I have taste. Uh, but the the <laughs> narrative around that was that Luther was like a, 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 a silicon yeah a social networking guy, right? So if they made if they made the the narrative something similar to that, I think that could be interesting. I I am very much not interested in what Jesse Eisenberg has to do with Lex Luthor anymore. I want bald, beautiful evil Lex. <laughs> the problem, though, with a Lex Luthor movie, in my opinion, is that Superman has to exist because Lex is... The way I've always understood Lex is that if Superman wasn't a person, if he didn't exist at all, Lex might actually be a good guy. He might yeah. actually do the right things in life. He might mm-hmm. actually aspire to do things like cure cancer or whatever else. And Superman is what? Superman is Lex's kryptonite in a way. And I 
I, I don't want to, I don't, like, I want that part of Lex to also be present. And the only way to get that is to have Superman at least exist. And if he exists at all, I don't really see why he wouldn't appear in the movie. Everything you said is certainly what Lex believes about himself. Doesn't mean it's true. Well, the comics have shown it. Well, I mean, Superman has flat out told him, like, yeah, Lex, if you really wanted to do that, you would have done it years ago. Yeah, but he's also the second or third smartest character in the in the universe. So, I mean, like, maybe the smartest. I think, I think, I, I think, canonically, Mister Terrific is the smartest, as I recall. Uh, I th- I think that's particularly why I'm not interested in the Donald Trump comparison. Is that like? Oh, what do they sure. have in common aside from the fact that they're rich? Like they're rich and they get to be well, president. He, like right, like that's it though. And, and evil, yeah. But like they're evil in way different ways. Yeah. Like you know what I mean? It it, it, it almost predisposes uh, that uh, Trump is smart and right. Uh, certainly not like Lex Luthor is smart. Is there is there a version that already exists that could work? Like, do you think Gene Hackman's uh? Lex Luthor could could pull that off in in yeah, sort of that prob- way. Probably, but do we want to go back to that well a third time, a third separate time? You know what I mean? I don't. I mean, listen, it's superhero comics, so of course people are gonna like whether whether or not we want to isn't the question. <laughs> Fair. So, uh, moving along into deeper down the rabbit hole of uh, insanity. Uh, DC Comics has announced (laughs) the definitive timeline for their comic book universe. Jesus Christ. What? Don't you want this, Phil? Don't you want? No. No? No. You don't want them to make a timeline that makes everything make sense? No. No. I, I think... I have, but it's all real. I have a lot of opinions on this. I'm going to save them until I, I explain <laughs> what this is. Uh, so at New York Comic Con, Dan Didio showcased, uh, a, a, I don't even know, uh, what do you call this? A ti- Yeah, a timeline. A, a infographic. Timeline infographic yeah. that showcases uh, what what is the DCU from, you know, 15 billion years ago to today. And uh, it show it tells you when characters debuted. It tells you what the when the major moments happened. So like when uh, Superman died, for example, uh, you get all those those kinds of things in there. It tells you where you know where things will go in the future. The the, the future information we have based on characters who exist, you know, years from now, um, and all that kind of jazz. And this is in an effort to streamline things and make things make sense uh, for the DC universe, which is known for, you know, not making sense. Um, so I'll read a little bit of what Dan Didio has said about this. We're trying to organize our stories in a comprehensive way. This will be the basis of all DC comics for the future. We don't know what the future is, but what's happening right now is a high level of planning. What we've done is identified the generations of DC Comics. We're reintroducing aspects of our history back into it. What you see right now is a story that will be consistent. All right. Uh, Cool. I've heard that before. (laughs) I, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but at some point he also mentioned that, uh, 
that uh, New 52 suffered from a lack of really sitting and looking at... Actually, here it is. Um, what might have slipped up was we didn't spend enough time to figure out what works in continuity. And that's something that I think is generally agreed upon when you talk about the New 52. So at least it's good that they recognize the problem. But what do you guys think about the idea of a of a timeline that is set in stone and, uh, you know, fixed? I mean, here in two years, it's going to be out of date and, you know, uh, uh, obsolete. Something will have to change. Damien's going to have a birthday and no, <laughs> literally, literally <laughs> Damien and uh, uh, John Kent just met, just met uh, again post John Kent's time in space. And now John Kent is 16 or some fucking shit now. It's already out the window. Well, that that's explained though, right? Like I'm uh, sure. I'm, hey, listen, he, it's comic books. Of course it's explained. The time, time was different in space where he was than it was on Earth. So. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. We've all <laughs> seen that is Interstellar. How works. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, that's a good dig. I love that movie. Uh, it's very good. So, what what do you think about Wonder Woman being classified as the first superhero? It's cool that they're pulling from the movies, from the Marvel movies, so hard. <laughs> you know, that's really great. <laughs> Kale with the shade. I'm loving this. <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's like this is one of those things that, like, I feel like on paper, it's like, yeah, great. Like, we're gonna clean it up and have it make sense. But like, to the point that Kale's making, like, how for how long until like they hit the reset button again, and it doesn't matter anyway. So it's like, I don't know, man. Like. I feel like this is a very specific thing that matters to a very specific kind of reader. And Sean. Yeah. And that's like why I'm most interested to hear what you have to say, Sean, because like you care about this kind of thing. And I feel like DC has like done this so many times that like for me, it just I I'm kind of numb to it. You know, it just feels like, okay, they're doing it again. And in five years, they'll do it again. So why does it matter so much now other than what it's going to mean in the immediate future for how, you know, it affects the titles that exist in the aftermath of it? And in, in, in fairness, this is the kind of thing you would you would have to do like every five years just to keep things tidy. I mean, Marvel didn't for a really like just they just kept letting things rubber band. <laughs> and their their continuity has been messy for decades too, though. Yeah. Well, they they have a a sliding timeline, and that's been a thing for years. Yep. Um, just just to clarify before Sean jumps in with his hot takes, I I like this kind of stuff, but I prefer it when it's ballpark and you can't necessarily nail it down because that cages you in. And that's the yeah. that's the struggle they're gonna have. And that's why they don't know what the the future holds with their stories is because now they're locked in this cage that they're going to have to reset here in five years. Totally. I mean, remember uh, in the New 52 when they crunched the timeline, and especially with Batman, it was most evident. We've talked about this on the show before, where 
he had been in, uh, he had been operating for like I, I forget the the exact it was ten years something like that. But he already had Damian Wayne, who was already like ten years old. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Dick had had gone from being a child Robin to Nightwing. Like it just all was too fast. It, it didn't make sense. Well, and the way the way they started the universe was with Justice League that was supposed to be five years before everything else, and then yeah. that just kind of wasn't the case <laughs> well i have a similar problem to, to to how i felt about that with this except i think that this might be worse um because okay so for example and this could be me uh, improperly reading this infographic it, it, you know I, I might be uh not getting this all right but uh it says that uh 10 years ago is when Superman first comes out, and that that's when all the heroes that we know and love really start to make their presence known. So that was 2010. Right. Um, already, there, there's, there's just flat-out problems with that. There's problems with Wonder Woman being the first superhero, because in Greg Rucka's run, it's established that uh, Wonder Woman came to Wonder Woman like came to man's world and all that stuff fairly recently. Mm. Um so that's that already weird. Um but then this timeline doesn't say or at least it doesn't say that I see when it was that Damian Wayne was born. Because he's 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 got to be like 10 to 12 years old, right? Uh 8 to 10, we'll say. 8 to 12, I should say. Uh, And at no point do I see where he was born here on this timeline. It says that eight years ago, Dick Grayson became Robin. That, that, uh, you sure? (laughs) Are you you sure it was, it was eight years ago? I don't, I don't really believe that. And it says four years ago, Robin became Nightwing. So how old is this guy? Yeah. You know? (laughs) And, and. (laughs) Does it say when Batman died? No. Oh, wow. Uh, it says that three years ago was when Barbara Gordon was crippled by the Joker. Uh, come on. Really? <laughs> <laughs> three years ago, huh? So, sure so it's three years she's ago. She's crippled then. Just that's. We're just leaving it there. Nothing she happened got, in between. She got back to being herself mighty quick. Right, jeez. <laughs> uh, but then this is the part that confused me the most, and it has—I have to be misreading it. And I would love it if you guys pulled this up to help me out. Um, uh, it yeah. says, "It says today, right? Oh, uh, Superman killed by Doomsday today. Yeah, right now that just happened. What? <laughs> <laughs> it says also today, Hal Jordan." Destroys Guardians, Green Lantern Corpse, and main power battery. Kyle Rayner becomes Green Lantern. That's that's the parallax story. How could that have just happened? There's no way that Wait. just happened. Wait. <laughs> right? Tell me I'm Where's, wrong. I'm, 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 I'm pulling to, it up, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to look at it. Like where does it where does it say today? Uh at the bottom. It says one year ago Tim Drake becomes current Robin. 
Really? Well, that's wholly false. <laughs> like, that's no way. Absolutely no way. <laughs> Jesus. This is why, folks, you shouldn't bother with a fucking timeline. You shouldn't bother drowning yourself in continuity. You just let it, let it be your headcanon. Let it be loose. Everyone kind of has a loose idea of where things fit. Just let it be. Speedy just became Arsenal. Just focus on good stories. So he was That's never all that matters. He never addicted to heroin then. No, they could really leave things like heroin off the uh, timeline. But it's the best fucking storyline. <laughs> like, okay, if you're gonna tell me that the Justice League has only been around for ten years, fine. I guess. Like, okay, if that's what you really want to say, then that's fine. But you can't tell me that Batman has only been around for ten years when he has a ten-year-old son. That's crazy, and I don't believe you. And I would rather that you just leave this alone. But oh, unless you, go. my man got busy, go. go. <laughs> right? Go ahead. Sorry, I, I, literally, I literally found the whole thing just oh, now. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I had to open like all of our links before I found the right one. It's, it's just, it's, it's bogus. It, it, it cannot, it cannot be legitimate. Uh, it says that Bruce Wayne's parents were murdered twenty five years ago. Uh, all right, if you say so. So basically, you're telling what? me that that Bruce Wayne is about thirty four years old. Right. But he's only so. Where does it say he started becoming Batman? He does became, it say that in the ten, he, he 10 beca- years ago. He, it says that he, uh, he ten years ago became Batman. It doesn't say like when he began his training or anything like that. Listen, the only thing more illegitimate than this time sheet is uh, Damian Wayne. Right, like he's left off, and I think that's deliberate. But in, in any event, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift gears. One thing here. Uh, before go you ahead, do, ahead, yeah. One thing is, all of the art on this is really old. Indeed, like yeah, it's all old stuff, man. Yeah, but it happened four years. Like Crisis on Infinite Earths happened four years ago. No, what? I'm, but I mean, and it, it may just <laughs> like, be what? the style, but all all of these uniforms and. I mean, characters and looks, and even the style looks like it was done in the late '80s. I'm sure that this is just repurposed artwork. Yeah, but which is you know, my point being, like you would think for something like this in you know this the year of our Lord almost 2020, they would want something with updated looks and artwork and. Now we're going back to the golden age, man. I honestly think it's just to give it a feel of a lived-in world that has a legacy to it. And yeah, pe- showing- that people recognize. Yeah. But when you do something like that, and it's like, this was 10 years ago, it completely alienates that legacy that you're trying to convey that you have. Well, and it, also stuff like Camelot is on here, and the World War One era with um, uh, Balloon Buster and Enemy Ace. And Jonah Hex. <laughs> Jonah Hex, I get. He's mildly popular, but Hawk, son of Tomahawk, like <laughs> what? It's important stuff, man. Well, but that, but that's my, that's what I'm getting at. Is like, what are you gonna do with all that? I'm gonna tell you right now. Oh, actually. fuck, man. Nice. I'm gonna tell you right now. So, all of this has a name. 
Okay, so what you're looking at is uh, Generation 1 is the Heroic Age, which is the early stuff. Generation 2 is the Space Age, which is uh, when Superman becomes Superman. The Age of Crisis is uh, everything that happens up until... uh, It's everything that happens up until uh today-ish and then flashpoint is today and like everything that's happening right now flashpoint era is rebirth basically notably new 52 did mention that because it's not it's 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 not being recognized by dc well those are go ahead sorry i i just to sort of counter that and sort of try and make it make sense it's that's the stuff that the new 52 is the stuff that was changed by Flashpoint and then changed again by Rebirth and now things are fine again. So it's Oof. the Flashpoint because that was the inciting incident. I, I guess. Uh, we'll leave it to DC to clear that up. But I just described to you four generations of DC comics. So what is the fifth one? Now, future. DC has there's there's been conversations here or there, like small references to something called 5G. Nobody knew what the hell it was. I never talked about it because I didn't know what it was. But now, with this, (laughs) pretty sure 5G is the next generation. So, what is the thing that we have been talking about for the last few months that doesn't make any sense? The Black Batman. The theory is that DC Comics is about to have another crisis, send all their heroes away, the main ones, and introduce a new wave of heroes to take the place of the old ones, and that would be 5G. No, this isn't gonna... No. No, no, no. 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 You sound horrified. Uh, hey, my man, I am. I can't believe they would do this eight years later. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No, no, let's hear it, Cal. Please, go on. Go off, King. I. What, what do you want? Like, is, it, is this going to happen now? Is this the end of Doomsday Clock? Is that is that Superman's going to come up to Dr. Manhattan and Manhattan's going to be like, okay, well, fuck you then. And like I don't know. I just Yeah. What He's broken. You've broken him, Sean. <laughs> and this is being reported all over the place. This is this is what is happening. Yeah. And we got bleeding cool. We've got comicbook.com. Oh, so this is what happened during Moira McTaggart's 10th life. (laughs) Well, so I don't know if you guys have paid attention to the studies, but 5G is super harmful to, like, the environment. It, it, um, (laughs) it, it, legit, this is, this is true. The 5G really, it operates on a frequency that is, it is, it is a lot faster, but it, it harms the, uh, it's on the same frequency as like the ozone. 
just like the 5G DC's trying to pull. This is like they're flying too close to the sun. <laughs> so we we we've we've heard that Jonathan Kent will become Superman. Uh sure that Green Lantern will be replaced by Teen Lantern. <laughs> Good. Great. And that Wonder Woman will also have something happen, but but it's unclear what that's gonna be. You've got Wonder and this Girl is back all now. sorry? You've got Wonder Girl back now. Right. Yeah, there you go. So this is all allegedly leading up to something that's gonna be, you know, whatever 5G is code for. Uh and that'll be the new generation, and there will be a crisis that leads into that. So for me, I'm look. I like crises. I like timelines. You know, I, I get nerdy for for deep continuity stuff like that. That's one of the reasons why House and Powers appeal to me so much because it gets in the weeds with like, well, what really happened, and you know, this is what this person was doing behind the scenes, and you know, these are the events that led to this specifically. I like all of that, but when you put a date on it, the conversation that we just had, whether you're interested in it or bored to tears, that's what happens. And to me, it's better to avoid that kind of conversation because there will inevitably be, A, people who are unhappy because you always end up invalidating things that happened in the, in the books by doing this. There are stories that now cannot have existed because we've seen Batman in the 60s. So how could we have seen him in the 60s, but he was also born in like 85, right? Impossible. Uh but then on top of that, you you, you have – it doesn't make any sense. It, it, just, it just doesn't – it doesn't make any sense. And there are people who will not want to read books anymore because they don't make sense to them. Jesus. Why We're not just leave it alone? This is a quote from the Hollywood Reporter article straight from Dan Didio. We're starting to figure out how continuity works. <laughs> Unreal. This dude has been editor in chief for like two decades. Unreal. It's not easy, man. Noting that reboots and complicated retcons are what happens when things stop making sense. So let me let me ask you guys this question: like moving away from the timeline and and all that stuff, like all the, all those messy bits. What is your reaction to the idea of of them doing this five G thing at all? Like the idea of an of a line of new superheroes that for however long will replace the characters that that we know yeah i guess that's the core of the question i'm fine with it i think it's novel it's a little bit gimmicky i'm sorry it's very gimmicky but um i think i like experimentation uh it's why i liked the new 52 for the most part it's also why i liked dcu for the most part why I wasn't super crazy about Rebirth because it was like, oh, no one likes the new stuff. Let's go back to the old shit. It's like, oh, okay. Um, I'm here for the concept, I guess. Uh, uh the main, I, like Sean, I like Crises too. I liked Crisis on Infinite Earths. I liked Infinite Crisis. I loved Final Crisis. Uh, those were all good. Um, uh, but you know what? Like, that was written by three very celebrated authors in the industry. You know, George Perez, Jeff Johns, and Grant Morrison. 
Who's going to do whatever this would be? Is it going to be Brian Michael Bendis? Is it going to be Tom King? Man, I don't know. Yeah, and on its on its face, that's that's the struggle I'm also having. I I wonder if this is this is Bendis coming out of the woodwork with a with a, a crisis idea. Honestly, this sounds very top down. Uh, the yeah. the idea of specifically wanting to have a timeline that makes sense, quote unquote. Uh, the idea of wanting to shake things up and introduce new versions of old characters. It just it sounds editorial, and it it definitely makes sense when you consider the fact that for almost a decade now, DC has been trying to make things make sense. And obviously the New 52 failed at doing that, but then Rebirth comes around and they're still trying to nail things down. You know, they tried to nail down Wonder Woman and when exactly she came to uh, man's world. Um, you know, you look at what Doomsday Clock is doing now. Doomsday Clock is literally a story that when you remove all the dressing of the cool stuff is about making sense of things that don't. That's what Dr. Manhattan is being used to do. So this is consistent with what DC's agenda has been for many years. My problem is that I think that they've chosen a way to do that that doesn't work. And quite frankly, I don't know that it needs to be done at all. When you look at Marvel, they don't have these problems. I'm not saying that there aren't things that don't make sense if you look at them really closely. But for the most part, you just read the books. Yeah, yeah, Marvel the, doesn't you, talk about it as much, so you don't think about it as much. Yeah, yeah. Like when did Ma- when nothing about Magneto makes sense anymore because he'd be like 125 years old. But no one, it, it doesn't matter. They just ignore it. Exactly. And as far as whether or not I'm I'm interested in them replacing all the heroes with like younger versions, absolutely not. I I think I'm I'm tired of that. Um, Marvel just did it with all new, all different, and, uh, you know, your mileage may vary. I felt like it was okay, it was fine, but I still wanted who I wanted. I wanted the original heroes. And this will be novel just like that was. For about six months, people will be fine with it. The stories that they crank out will be cool, but then everybody's going to want the originals back, and we're going to get them back. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. You know what this feels like to me? It kind of feels like a Heroes Reborn yeah. thing, which was that uh, Onslaught story, yep. where it's like, let's remove all of our main characters uh, and probably shorten our publication list down again. And um, we'll try something different. Yeah. And and DC has and done things like back. this before. Yeah. Um, what am I... New 50... The, the 52 era yes, of comics where like Batman and Superman... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they sent away the big three and they experimented with it. Yeah, yep. it, it, it's kind of a bummer because like I definitely, you know, um, I, I agree with what you're saying, Sean, in terms of it feeling like a, a top down, like kind of wanting to clean house. Uh, but I, I am upset, I guess, on some level that I feel like whenever there is an initiative like that these days, that's generally like what it seems like and how we as readers react to it. Because, like, I think about, like, the introduction of, like, Wally West, you know? And, like, that created a character that has become a legacy character in their own right. Or, like, 
with even with Miles, right? Like when it's done right, like you can get characters that stand the test of time and that really do freshen up the brand um, and bring on new readers, you know, and not necessarily because, you know, like for any number of reasons that you might think, but it's just like when a new run happens, like oftentimes people jump on if they connect with that character that becomes, you know, there's like Superman. There'll be, there could be a generation of kids who look at, you know, like Clark's son as their Superman instead of Clark. And like, that is something that we've seen with plenty of like like legacy mantles that have been passed on to other meaningful characters and like i'd like to see more of that cuz i think in general like that is a good thing you know to get new blood and like to have characters that are relevant that aren't from 40 50 80 years ago all the time the problem with that is nowadays is that they want their cake and they want to eat it too. Yeah, right, exactly. They want those top dollar things for a new number one, but they also want to appease the people who have been reading for 40, 50 years. Right. You know, so that 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 was the problem with Wally West is that when they decided to yeah. reboot everything, in quotes, everything, quote unquote everything, you know, they tried to bring back Wally West and make something new, but nobody wanted it. And that's why we have Rebirth. And, you know, with every other character, it's, it's you know, they they want to have their legacy, but they also want to build something new. And it just, you can't, yeah, and, and, you can't necessarily have both in a year. And and what you're talking about, Pete, is what I am sure they are talking about in the Time Warner boardrooms. You know, they're like, uh, we need to appeal to a younger generation so that we have new blood to buy these things that uh, we are selling. And we've seen this before from DC. I mean, that's what the New 52 in principle was supposed to be. It was a top-down decision to, you know, try to basically start from scratch. Um, and what comes from these things, because I'm sure the same thing happened with Marvel... In Disney, when they started doing all new, all uh, all different Marvel with these kind of legacy characters, which is sometimes it worked and sometimes it won't. It depends on the writer you have, and it depends how the character resonates. And you know that you know a lot of people really hated that era of Marvel that just happened the last few years. But what came out of it is things like Kamala Khan and Miles Morales, who people really like. So maybe something similar will come out of this, but it's going to upset a lot of people. Well, there's another side to that, too, which is that um, the the world of comics has evolved rapidly since even the days of when that happened with Miles. Um, and, and, and that, you know, that was an example. That's an example of a character who died in the Ultimate Universe. So a lot of people like myself don't see that as consequential. Um and then we got Miles out of it, which literally did allow Marvel to have their cake and eat it too. Because if you really love Spider-Man, you can still read, you know, Spider-Man uh, in the mainline Marvel. Whereas if you remove Superman from play, there is no other place to read Superman. And we've had so many replacements since Miles. And that was only in 2011. Since then, uh, mainline Spider-Man has died. Wolverine has died. Captain America has been dead and old. Um, Gwen Stacy came back. 
Gwen Stacy came. Like, we could go on and on. <laughs> Twice. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, and a lot of those were organic, right? Like, Bendis had this idea for Miles. And for me, that makes it acceptable because it was a creator's choice. It was someone sure. had an idea for something that they tried and it worked. And I'm thankful that Marvel said yes. Um, I'm not I'm as sure interested. they are too. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not <laughs> as interested in Dan Didio's vision for 5G. You know, for a new wave of 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 heroes taking over the mantle of the old ones. That doesn't hold weight for me, and um, I'm sure there will be a lot of resistance from comic book fans based on that. But if it's gonna happen anyway, I, I hope it's good. Of course. Yeah, is it something you're at all interested in checking out, or is it something that you will check out just to see how it shakes out? I mean, look, you're asking the wrong person. I, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> my for, record is clear. Yeah, for me, I think on its and and this is pretty on brand for me. Like I on on its face with the announcement, I'm very annoyed, mm. but. We don't know the story. We don't know what is going Maybe, maybe this will be the one. Maybe this is their hawks pox. Like, sure, you, you know. never know. Yeah, you never know. Uh, unfortunately, it could be good. Um, I think, I think with Jonathan, I am the most interested because that I think could actually be really cool. The idea of a, a story about like the son of Superman needing to take up that mantle and like living in his father's shadow all that like there's like there's meat there i think that could be worth it if if they have a good creative team on it but that's what the legion is like he's what well, you know he's just joined the legion of superheroes to fulfill that yeah why isn't that <laughs> a journey that they're gonna focus on like because they already had that number one kale it's over <laughs> I mean, if that's the case, why don't they just why don't they just put out why isn't every issue just a new number one? Like, <laughs> I'm tired. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's exhausting. <laughs> Kale um, looks so physically I, defeated. I'm so I'm so frustrated <laughs> by superhero comics. Let's then let's not even talk about superhero comics anymore. Let's talk about. Horror comics. Let's talk about Machina Corpse, actually. So Machina Corpse is a comic book publisher that's jumping into the game that wants to uh, tell some horror stories. And that's all they want to do. Um, they've got a Kickstarter up right now um, for their, uh, their first comic, which is called First Offerings. And... Hopefully for them, this Kickstarter will generate enough money for them to be able to start making even more books going forward. Uh, so the Kickstarter is live now, uh, and it's live until October 30th. So you've got some time to jump on and uh, um, you know join the Kickstarter if you would like. Um, this is a company that is co-founded actually by two comic creators. So uh, Stefan. Emmond, who you might know from Emo Boy, Happy Face, or Wintertown, and Chandra Free from God Machine, Fraggle Rock, and John Cobb Carpenter's Tales for a Halloween Night. Um, uh, Sean, real quick, is this yeah. corpse like a dead body? As opposed to like the Green Lantern Corps? <laughs> yes, yes it is. Oh, okay. 
Uh, <laughs> I was looking. I was looking. Look at uh, trying to Google it. So, uh, Emmond had this to say about what what they're trying to do here. Horror is an amazing genre. You can do so many imaginative and creative things, and horror comes in all shapes and sizes, from family drama to slice of life, action, and even humor. The audience for horror is looking to be scared. We open our most vulnerable selves to this art form. We let these stories in on a deep level, and comic books are the perfect storytelling tool between the art and writing and the singular vision a creator can provide. I like this. Um, I'm a big fan of horror, big fan of horror comics, uh, and I don't feel like there are enough on the shelves right now. And I think... does Okay, so realistically, does a comic book company that only makes horror comics have a, a great shot at success? Eh, probably not. I mean, but, as much as anything else does in this industry right now. Um, sure. But, uh, you know... I, I would love to see this work. Uh, I think that some of the art that they've showcased looks pretty cool. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, you know, they they have an uphill battle. Right now they're at uh, 2,600 of their 6,200 goal with 18 days left. So if this is important to you, now's the time. Sean, how do you feel about all this? Me? Yeah, specifically, you're a big horror guy. Like, you must be over the moon. Um, yeah, man, <laughs> I, I want to see more horror books. I, I really do. Um, but is the, does that mean that this is up my alley? No, because for me, what I need to, for what I need to be able to go and pick up a book is, um, like for example, with something is killing the children. James Tinian's name is on it. Does that automatically mean that I'm going to buy it? No, I like him, but that's not that name doesn't just make me go buy a book. I need to see the artwork. I need to see the premise. I need to see the reviews. I need to know that this is something that um, people are talking about. And if it's not that, then I need to go to the store and be able to hold it in my hands and flip through it and say, oh, this is this is cool. Um, That's why Kickstarters have never really been my thing. Yeah. So gotcha. that's that's kind of my thing with it too is I you know I trade weight. So uh, a Kickstarter for an issue of a book is a tough sell for me. Yeah. Definitely. No matter no matter how cool the concept. And uh, like they they're asking for travel and con- you know uh, help for conventions and uh, page rates, I just kind of, I don't know. I, that's not abnormal, but, you know, it's just, again, for, you know. You don't know if you want to throw down all that money for something that you're not even, like, sold on yet. Yeah. Yeah. I would need to see a lot more than what they're showing right now. Sure. That's that's my thing. I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, and then the last news story before we jump into our Powers of 10 review is something that I think is pretty cool. Uh, we're getting a real-life Joe Kubert library right here in New York City. Or, I should say, in New York. Uh, <clears throat> so, Joe Kubert obviously is a legendary figure. 
in comics. Um, and he, we're going to get a uh, basically a library that's not only going to showcase his work, um, but work from all different levels of comics uh, and things like that. Um, RIT, which is the Rochester Institute of Technology, is going to be uh, creating this. It's going to be it's going to have uh, exhibition space. Um, it's going to be a, a library that they're calling world class. And uh, here's a little bit of what they have to say about it. The Rochester Institute of Technology is establishing a world-class library, makerspace, and museum devoted to comic books and popular arts, building from a foundational collection of Joe Hubert's studio materials, process artwork, original art, and published work. The Hubert Library will be a one-of-a-kind center for the study, appreciation, and production of comic books and related arts. Um, and then, of course, Adam Hubert, uh, the son of Joe, said... RIT is basically archiving everything that was in Dad's studio when he passed seven years ago. The idea is to become a destination for artifacts from past and present storytellers, narrative artists, in order to pass on skills and knowledge using a hands-on educational approach. I love this. Yeah, this is... uh, The people behind this are doing the real work, you know, man? Um, To me, like, that is... Like, when I started doing what we do here, like, the whole purpose of it was to try and um, be a part of that conversation, right? Of, like, lifting up the art that you appreciate and, like, the people who are, who go to the lengths to start a museum or create a place where, like, these, like, artifacts of this art form and this medium can be preserved and appreciated, you know, for future generations is, like, it's, it's really, really valuable, important work. And... I'm glad that there are people out there that are that are doing it. I read between the lines, Pete. I know exactly what you're trying to say. You want us to build you a museum. Well, mm-hmm. listen, we're not going to do that, okay? Well, fine, <laughs> if you don't appreciate the past, that's your problem, Phil. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, one thing that Fucking I neglected... Kylo Ren over here. One thing I neglected to mention was that they will also have classes where they're going to be teaching comics. And that is something that I am so passionate about because I feel that there aren't enough ways for someone who wants to get into comics to learn it. Um, you know, if you go to a traditional school, you're not really, I mean, I, I don't think that there are a ton of schools that offer comic book courses where you can learn to write comics or draw comics, which is very different than working in any other medium where you're writing or drawing. Um, And you're kind of just on your own. Marvel and DC don't have a lot of avenues for helping, you know, people with just the dream. And uh, I think something like this could be a destination for a lot of people who want that. Ten years ago, if this had existed, I would have been there. Absolutely. Right now, the best thing you got is the comics experience. And while that's cool... Uh, it's not a place anymore. It's not a place you can go to um, to learn. It's an online course. And I think that there being a, a physical place that you can go to, experience the legacy of this industry that you love, and, and learn the nuts and bolts of how to work in it and how to create in it is something that this industry desperately needs. Hmm. I, Scott Snyder teaches something like that, doesn't he? 
he has like a DC school, I think. Right? Yeah, that's the uh, the thing that that Katie did, right? The um, there is that workshop. Yeah, um, the workshop. No, this is yeah, this creator. is something different. Kale's talking oh. about uh, Scott Snyder teaches college courses, but I'm fairly sure that those courses are just more traditional writing classes, and he oh. uses. Yeah. He does use comics in it, but he's not teaching you how to write comics. Oh, it's kind of like how when I went to college uh, for my master's program, there was a class that was like comic book writing, but they don't have a – like it's a course, right? Not like uh, like, a, a, like a specialization like what you did, Kale. I wouldn't know? call that what I yeah. did, but I'm pretty bitter this week, so. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. Um, I, I think Scott Snyder teaches at NYU. Yes. Yeah. So e- either way, to Sean's point, um, there aren't a lot of ways to like start practicing the basics. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Especially like when you compare it to something like, like even video games, right? Which is like by comparison, a much younger medium. There are way, way, way more like well-established technical technical universities that have game design courses where like you could go and ostensibly learn narrative design for games art direction any of those sorts of things and then walk out with industry contacts and like have leads on a job you know whereas like for comics it's like obviously not exactly the same because there's a lot less like contract work in comics in that way than there is in games but like when you think about if you are a young person how many people have written into our show being like oh i want to break into comics and like how do i do that and what do i you know like where do i start and, you know, any person that you hear, like, has a different journey there because the real – at the end of the day, the advice is just start doing it and put them out and let people give you feedback, you know? And, like, aside from a few great books that exist out there, like uh, McLeod's um, – what's the title of it? Uh, Understanding Comics, Dirk Manning's Got Right or Wrong, Volume 2's coming out pretty soon. Like, there are books out there where you can go and learn these things, but, like, they're not... There's there's a big difference, I think, between, like, teaching yourself something by reading a book or whatever and, like, being in a collaborative environment where you have instructors and peers that you can learn from. Because a lot of people learn skills like that on their own, and there's value to that. But I, I, do, I do really believe in... Um, in like p- that peer review process and everything, especially when it comes to like creative work. I've I've read probably every major how to writing book that exists for comics, and they're all great, but none of them held a candle to being able to sit in a room with uh, John Barber, who was the editor, who was an editor at Marvel and now uh, works at IDW. I forget his role, but he's got a major role over there. And at the time, he was teaching comics experience and sitting in a room with him and, like, eight other people and learning the nuts and bolts of how to write a comic book from the bottom was the most important thing that ever happened to me as far as that goes. Uh, And I think more people need to be able to do that. Mm. So I hope that this takes off. I really, really do. It's a great idea. Even just on its face, preserving old art like that is tremendous. And and there needs to be more of that for uh, those creators. Well, and, like, there's clearly an interest in it, right? Like, I mean, just this summer in Philadelphia, they had that Marvel exhibit 
at um, which museum was it, Phil? Uh, wasn't it the uh, was the Franklin Institute? Wasn't... Yes, it was the Franklin Institute. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's like there's there's clearly an interest in in preserving comics history and like and like the average public wanting to engage with it um, as these characters become more and more part of like mass popular culture, uh, which is great. I mean, I think that's huge because, you know, there's so like, we've talked about creators rights and like how many stories that stem from all that, like people caring about the history is the first step towards that kind of stuff not happening. Yeah, absolutely. When this opens, we should visit it. Uh, Yeah. I was going to say, dude, let's go. We'll do like a vlog or something. I'd love to go check it out. Yeah. Kelly, you can teach there. That'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> Hit me up, brother. Kaleward.com. <laughs> All right, let's let's uh, let's get into our review of Powers of Ten. The exciting um, conclusion. A- Guys, I can't. I'm in a zoo. So actually, uh, we have to review Event Leviathan at number five. God. Uh, Man, we were so close, Kale. Oh, what are you blaming me for? I didn't set the standard. I said, hey, were, let's not uh, do it. Forget Event Leviathan. Uh, Actually, I think I was one of the ones that was excited about Event Leviathan when it started. Yeah, you were. <laughs> Absolutely, you were. As we're was I. History. And I'm excited to talk about this very issue. That makes one of us. Mm, it's fine that Phil's always right about everything. <laughs> So, I'm just going to say it, because I obviously you guys don't agree, so I'm just going to, I'm ready to fight. Um, I think Event Leviathan number five was a lot of fun. I I enjoyed this issue, and it had twists and turns, things that you would expect from a mystery story. Uh, finally, we're getting some of those. Uh, I I enjoyed... The conversation between Leviathan and Superman, it wasn't perfect, but I I did enjoy it. And I liked the way that Bendis built the tension towards the end of the book. I thought that was really fun. I got wrapped up in it. What about you guys? All right, well, uh, Powers of Ten, number six. (laughs) Ha ha ha. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I... I just don't have much to say about this issue, honestly. I just, uh, I'm kind of checked out on this story, and this issue felt like kind of is emblematic of like my problem with it overall. Is like, you're right that like there were a lot of big moments here, but it still just feels like a lot of just like people standing around talking about action. Hey, well. I'll disagree with you there. It was cool to see someone do one thing, but then go there to talk to someone. <laughs> we got in a car because we need to go have a conversation. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, I just uh, I'm 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 not too invested in this book anymore, and I I don't really care what happens anymore. I'm still really enjoying the art, um, but that's about it. Yeah, for me, it's still just it's a lot of talk. Like, none of the stuff that they're coming up with here just, it doesn't make sense to me, like, where they're pulling all this stuff from. Like, the stuff about, uh, full spoilers here, by the way. Yeah. 
the stuff about like Manhunter and her being framed? When did that happen? Well, they've been suggesting that Manhunter might have been involved for a while. And then all of a sudden Robin figures out that the fluorescent light she's carrying is going to be connected. I don't know, man. I just And I think I think what pulls me out of this and and I know I know Phil agrees with this based on his moans and groans as as we were uh, waiting for you guys to read it. And it man, it just the the voice in here is all it's one voice. It's all, it's all Bendis and it just like there's very 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 little variation in who's talking. And it just it it has driven it has driven me crazy. I I can't enjoy it anymore. Jeez. Like Zatanna comes up to Lois Lane and says, Hi, Miss Lane, Zatanna, Master of the Mystic Arts. We've met a bunch of times, but it's okay if you don't remember. That that's Bendis. Like, <laughs> that's not Satana. Satana doesn't talk like that. Satana's never talked like that. Yeah. And I, I guarantee there are issues of every single Bendis main two series where a, a, a line of that exact phrasing has come up. Journalist, sure, I could buy that. Zatanna's not a journalist. Yeah, the the dialogue is is definitely as clunky as ever at some points. Uh that that uh uh piece of dialogue you pointed out bothered me too. Uh there's a there's a reverence of Lois Lane that's like happening now where everyone all of a sudden is just like really really respects her like crazy and that's cool she deserves respect but it's like a lot uh, especially Zatanna Zatanna's done a lot of cool things in her own right well and it's like it's like on some level you sort of wonder if like this respect comes because of whose wife she is and it's also or and it's also like how would they know that or it feels more like pop culture is infiltrating it, where it's like Lois Lane is one of the five most famous people from DC Comics, and it's seeping into a book. And we've, we've seen that last issue. The that assassin was a big fan of Lois Lane. I, that so I, there is an element of that that is plausible. Yeah, I think that makes sense but it, to me. It, like, I, I get what you guys are saying, but I feel like. I I am more aligned with what Phil's laying down there, where it just feels like she's a celebrity, you know, and like there are people who like would be starstruck by her. Yeah, but the point I'm making is that this has never happened before. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not talking about pop uh, uh, celebrity in the book. I'm saying she's well known in real life. Like I work in journalism. What journalist in real life would receive that uh, appreciation and, uh, and and respect like that from everyone? nobody? Especially considering <laughs> yeah. that like we live in a world that doesn't have powers. These people actually have powers, and it's very strange for them to all be super powerful and not talk to each other like that. But then when they see Lois, they they lose their minds. It's just it's it's clearly a specifically Brian Michael Bendis agenda 
that he has. He likes Lois Lane. Right. He likes Lois Lane. Exactly. Sure. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I loved seeing um, the, the situation with Lois's dad. I thought that that played out in a really, really interesting way. Uh, I thought it was very ridiculous, though, that every one of those uh, detectives that Lois has brought on board all thought that her dad was Leviathan, but he's not. And it just like yep. he agrees with Leviathan, which is totally believable, and I love that. Um, I just don't understand why they thought it was him, but then it wasn't. That's just and, they're they're too powerful for that. And also that was it. Only the question thought of that in the main group of detectives, because he was the one that he and Plastic Man were the ones that stayed behind to watch right. him or something, right? Yeah. Um, you want to know what I thought, Sean? Go ahead. I thought it was okay. Okay. Wow, that's, that's more than I expected. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was okay. Uh, I thought this was the best issue of the five. Yeah. Uh, I, I continue to surprise, right? <laughs> I love it. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, it wasn't good. And the reason it wasn't good is because the last four issues sucked. That's the reality of it. This this is the most competent issue of the five that we've read. Because to what Pete alluded to earlier, it is a, and Kill, there is a lot of standing around and talking. But I think in this issue, it's a vehicle for the action. Whereas with everything else, it was, oh, remember this thing that happened that we didn't see. Yeah, it's Whereas cool. the standing around, it's yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I was gonna make the same joke. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it it's a little different. Is my only point. Um, though another thought I did have is, what if this book's art was really bad? I, because the art is so good that it really does elevate it for sure. I, I gotta I gotta say on the art front, I still disagree i i just don't like it really yeah i think i'm with you phil it it works for me too for me the the colors are they feel just all over the place um especially when you get to zatanna porting some uh uh opening a, a, a magic door or whatever to the hospital yeah i just i don't feel like i can tell what's actually happening like what is lois doing there you know in that panel uh just as she's going in i just i um, just I, I that's i don't like it that's fine Every, everyone has a, a difference with art uh you know when we did all star superman as a book club there were folks who didn't really care for um for um quietly uh, thank you frank quietly's art and you know it's a, it's a you know it's one of those things it's a Art is subjective, right? So that's it, fine. I, I personally really like it. Um, there is a little too much text overall. I mean, Leviathan monologues like crazy. And it's a, it's definitely overboard. Like Bendis could have condensed this big time. And there is way too much Bendis speak in the first half of the of the book. But it gets, the Bendis speak gets a little better. And what Kale said, everyone has one voice, is 100% correct. And it sucks because I Bendis think it was like really... 
It's been the worst yeah. this issue, actually. You think so? Uh, at least I think it's gotten worse as the series has gone on. Um, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. I think because I remember complaining that Batman had like a robot voice. Yeah, you know, earlier on and being like, I don't really like the way he writes Batman, and now I feel like Batman just sounds like another like God. it's like there's five Bendises sitting in the car and they're yeah. just bantering. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's fair. Um, yeah, and and the and, and I think Sean, you 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 were able to kind of acquiesce in saying that like the dialogue is a weak part, and it really is. But I think overall he builds a decent narrative here and that's kind of why i think this issue is okay mm. um i think the narrative he's constructed with having superman trapped in this in this bubble uh is a compelling situation and the way that damien figures out that uh manhunter's uh weapon is linked to all this while completely contrived it i think it works as kind of a cliffhanger for the final issue it, it's okay yeah, um, I I really liked that part of it where Damien is kind of like working this out in his own mind and then he starts, you know, explaining or kind of just questioning her. Um, really wasn't a fan of Damien's lips in this issue. Really random <laughs> critique, but they're just <laughs> super weird. Like, dude, look at this. Look at this kid's lips, man. What now is that happening? You say it, like, they look like they're pursed. Like, he's like sucking on a lemon. I can't unsee this shit. Yeah, they're prominent. Um, I, I, I also like that of all these detectives, he's the one that has any kind of semblance of working this out. Yeah, which you know, definitely, there's an argument to be made that that's ridiculous. Uh, but you know, sure, a hundred percent. Batman is too busy worried about defending his car. Uh, when he's speaking, <laughs> which was so ridiculous. Like I'm just completely yep. done with Batman in this entire book. Um, yep. But but yeah, I I didn't mind Damien so much being the one in this car to be able to figure that out. Uh, what I mind is the fact that I'm not sure why he figured it out necessarily. Yeah. yeah. No, a hundred percent. Yep. That's that's my problem. Is it? It feels like it. Came out of nowhere because he saw her light bulb and and uh, you know yeah yeah absolutely um, I really liked the twist of having Talia Al Ghul show up I thought she was definitely missing from this series given her connection to the OG Leviathan um, not clear on why she had to shoot the car up gotta make an but, entrance yeah that that's true she she was saved by superman from leviathan though yes so i mean uh, unless he did something with her like i assume he put her in jail or some shit but you know if if it's if superman jail is anything like batman jail they've got a revolving door there so i forget how that resolves but i feel like she was in the wind after that that's way back in Superman Leviathan Rising special. Yeah. I don't remember yeah. how that resolved. So I it's not too like it's not too surprising that she's here. Yeah. Uh all in all, I I I had fun reading this issue and following the the mystery 
Uh, I, I do think, though, that this issue has a lot of problems, which you guys laid out very well. Um, I'm back to being excited to see how this resolves. I really wanted to see Leviathan take that damn mask off. God bless you, Sean. God bless you. <laughs> I'm glad you're my having man, fun with it. My man's a mark. I'm glad someone's enjoying it. Yeah, I don't know, man. Uh... <laughs> I mean, like, for me, like, the ending, you know, if it looks like, if it is like, the way it looks like it's going, like, the the legacy idea of the Manhunter being Leviathan, that could be interesting. You know, making Manhunter a, a relevant character. Yeah. That 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 could lead to something good. And, you know, Bendis has done quite a bit in the in the name of, you know, reinventing characters over time and, and bringing them to prominence. I just, Definitely. You know, that that's the... Just seeing how that will play out is the only reason I will remind us here next month when <laughs> number six comes out. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, uh, let's get to the main event. Let's talk about All right. Powers of Ten number six. This is the finale issue of Ooh, the House and Powers um, story that Jonathan Hickman has been telling alongside R.B. Silva and Pepe Larraz and Juan de Gracia and the whole crew. Um, so I want to I wanna approach this a little bit differently than we have prior issues because there's a lot to unpack. So I really do want to follow the narrative of the book a little bit closer than, than typical. Uh, and I want to start with the first thing that happens, which is the thing that I think people have uh, liked the least so far with this issue, which is the fact that the first few pages essentially reiterate I mean, not reiterate, they literally show us the same scene again from uh, from House 2. Uh, th- that doesn't bother me. Uh, sort of looking at it now, after reading it and kind of looking at it a second time, I feel like that's context I personally needed to get where I needed to be at the end of this issue. So that doesn't really bother me. I agree. If it's if it's for a purpose, then I, that doesn't bother me. And isn't uh correct me if I'm not uh, correct me if I'm mistaken, but this issue is longer than the other issues, correct? Yeah. Or at least so it feels whatever, that way. you know? Yeah. Yeah, so whatever. It's just, you know, it's a longer issue. They it's not like it, it, it's it's immaterial to the quality of the issue I think because it, it it's it doesn't impact like the the meat of it. it it's just used there for context it's contextual if anything yeah. it, it helps I mean it helped me come back in like I yeah. don't remember any exactly. of this like I totally oh, really? agree and it, it it brings you back into that mental space of this moment that's it, fair yeah, and I I feel like it would be one thing to make that complaint if it had impacted the length of the issue. Yes, but it did. It was padding. Yeah, right. Like, but it didn't. So I don't see how that's a valid criticism at all. I completely agree with what you guys are laying down. It puts you back in that moment, and it recontextualizes the things that you're about to see. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I, a valid criticism. I just uh, I think it works. I, it's 
there, there are folks that criticized it. That was I, before I even read this issue. I saw that on the internet. But it's like just skip ahead, then, man. It's I don't know. It's like they're just extra pages. I don't get. I don't get why you would flag the book for that. Yeah, for I, for me, this was that was perfect. It was so cool that they brought those pages back because. When you think about everything that we've seen with with Professor Xavier, right, and how different he is, to go back again and see him as this young, upstart guy who has this dream that mutants and humans can live together in harmony, and we now know everything that we know about how wrong that is, Mm. uh, I think that this was awesome. And it was very effective for me anyway. I'm... Well, we see the... I just got just real quick. I am also hungry for Moira Taggart. Like, not, whoa, not, oh, what's not up? just whoa, what's up? keep it down. I chose I chose that word very specifically. I'm not. <laughs> I I'm got not, you. I'm not thirsty for Moira Taggart. <laughs> although they do a great job, and I certainly wouldn't say no. What my point is, I want to see what she's doing. I want to see oh. the character. I want to, you know. I want to right now, like in this series, she's the character I want to follow. Man, you sound thirsty. Listen, I'm thirsty, but I'm also hungry. <laughs> boy, oh boy, um, Sean, Sean. When we're introduced to Moira, uh, this this follows your narrative conversation because it's the next couple pages. When we see Moira in the uh, one thousand years in the future timeline, she is. The dummy thick, and the first person I thought of was you. Uh, I don't know why that made you think of me, but um, <laughs> uh, sure, we can <laughs> we we can take it there if you would like. Um, oh my god, <laughs> Kale took it there by accident. <laughs> I don't mean to take it there as far as to talk about her thick. I mean, it's not really by accident. <laughs> You know, to talk about the next scene, girl, be dummy which... shake. It's cool. <laughs> I'm into it. All right. Uh, it takes I, us into. I wish I knew what uh, that meant. <laughs> it takes us into X three, so year one thousand ish, on the preserve, which for me, anyways had a totally different context now than it did for me before. Right? We got to talk about this. So yes. Yeah, no, we have to. I did not really get what this was supposed to be at first. I thought that this was a like um like a a zoo for humans for 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 human beings from the past. And it's not. Um, we see that there are other animals there, like there's uh, elephants there, but um, there's other stuff going on, lots of wildlife. But what's really there is Wolverine and of course, Moira. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I, I just I just want to address something real quick just before we we go too far. That second panel where I guess the librarian is turning on the lights or whatever. That was a really confusing panel for me because the one above it is all lit up and it's super colorful and the sun's out. But I like I had trouble figuring out what I was looking at. Like it looked to me like I was looking at you know when somebody 
gets shot and you're, you know, and it's one of those cartoonish things where you're looking through the hole at someone else. Yeah, yeah. That's what that looked like to me, and I was very confused. To me, I got the impression that the librarian has come through that door, and then in the next panel you see that that mechanism is gone, and it's just the panel there. Mm. So I I was thinking that they were – whatever that goo is, you know, it, like, is kind of, like, cloaking the door. It's some kind of artificial reality. Right, yeah. Yeah. Uh... Oh, hosers! Why won't someone please put me out of my misery? (laughs) (laughs) 1,000 years without a Molson's. Damn, you know what? (laughs) This is 1,000 years in a possible timeline. This very well could be Canadian Wolverine. Oh, my God! That's not even a good No hockey for 1,000 years, eh? (laughs) So... We, we we now know what the librarian's ultimate goal is. Like this this conversation is such a it's an info dump, but it's an info dump in the best way possible because it's not yeah, he is monologuing, but this is the this is what we've craved to learn. It provokes more thought. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? And it's it's really a horrifying thing if you think about it, right? Like these are mutants that have been held captive for who the heck knows how long. And there are some serious implications in terms of what he's talking about. So I'm going to break it down. He's essentially saying that human beings, or rather that mutants were not the last stage of evolution for humans. That the last stage of evolution for humans is actually humans merging with uh, machines. And that is something that all of us in the community who have been, you know, looking at these books have overlooked. But it's always been there. And if you think about real life, it's also true. Well, it's also it, – they Hickman did a great job also at sort of turning our heads too. Yes. You know, we did it – was, it was there, absolutely. But I also think he did an excellent job of making us look the other way. Smoke and mirrors, as it were. <laughs> right. Singularity, baby! Hickman loves that shit! Um, yeah, so... Uh, I got to, go ahead, go ahead. I, I, I get excited for this stuff. It's also why I, I personally try not to get too ahead of myself when I read things like this, because I know I'm going to be wrong. Uh, and I was. Um, I love this whole concept of, of, of uh, Homo Novissima. Where it's like the, the the real threat to humans, I'm sorry, the real threat to mutants isn't this war with humans like we talked about. It was the nature of evolution that Homo superior isn't the end all be all to the uh, evolution of, of uh, you know, uh, humans or upright apes or whatever. Uh, it's this Homo novissima, which is the ultimate threat to, to mutants, which is what leads to this technocracy that Hickman's been alluding to for six issues it's this branch of humanity that's able to uh control its own genetic diversity and its own genetic destiny and fuse it together with technology to create a true singularity which is the whole thing with the technocracy which i know sounds like a bunch of bullshit when i say it out loud but uh (laughs) um (laughs) it's it's this greater concept of of whatever these blue skin humanoids the 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 homo novissimas fusing with this greater 
intergalactic consciousness of 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 this um carbon-based life form fused with silicon-based life form and mutants figure in no way to this greater plan and i think maybe i'm wrong i think this is what is supposed to be moira mctaggart's sixth life that's confirmed that yeah that's absolutely that's, true that's, yeah great Great. So he, cool. Yeah, and I actually, I threw Thank that you. I theory out. Figured out what apparently was evident. <laughs> I I think I threw that theory out in one of our previous discussions because that has been kind of like the one of the lone un, unanswered threads for so long, and as was the future timeline, right? And obviously, that future timeline could in no way um, connect to where we knew the X Men were going, right? So. I, I'm really compelled by this because I think that coupled with like the finishing of the conversation between Charles and Moira uh, really kind of neatly ties everything together because now one of the things we've been talking about for a long time is like what's up with Professor X like you know this isn't the Charles that we know like is it someone else is it and I, I don't think it is anymore like I think between what we saw on the page here and then the um entries from Moira's journal that talk about Charles's progression. I uh, am definitely convinced that this is Charles and that this is, you know, just a much, much different version of him Mm. because of all these experiences that he's had. And now what he knows about, about, you know, what Moira knows, you know, what he knows about humans, the Charles with the the helmet, the, yes, our present timeline, Charles, the, the big cerebro headed Charles. Yeah, yeah, I I definitely think he is Charles Xavier, but I think that he is, you know, uh, pretty far removed from the guy that, you know, that that people think of when they think of Charles. You know, guys, my friends like to call me a big cerebro-headed man myself <clears throat> just because of how smart I am. I think it's a little bit, um, a little bit weird that. Life six would have been the one thousand year stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> um. I I I mean I guess we don't really know enough, but it, I just think it's 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 odd that that was the life in which she made it so far to get Agreed. to get to to that point. I think it would have made a lot more sense if that was eight or nine. Yeah, if that was nine, because uh, in nine nine is where she and apocalypse run stuff right so yep. uh in in 5 uh, she just dies during a genocide like there's nothing nothing that i feel like she learned in 5 based on what we are aware of leads me to believe that she could have survived for so long in 6 uh especially it's weird because yeah. you would okay go ahead oh sorry um, well, I was gonna, I was just gonna say because you would think these other lives, particularly like the ninth life where she does experiment with exa- uh, apocalypse, which makes it sound like a bad college uh, experiment, if you know what I'm saying, um, <laughs> or an eighth life where she allies herself with Magneto. You would think these are like trial and error things early on. Like, yeah, um, I I guess I guess I get the the sudden um 
aggression on her part that didn't exist before towards being willing to 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 try to succeed at any at any means necessary whereas before she was simply trying to kill um uh the trask family off but it's after life six where she really starts like okay let me try you know joining apocalypse let me try joining magneto like there are no limit limits to how far she's willing to go so i get that i just don't understand what why life six was where she was able to survive for so long well uh, so i'm sorry which which part do you not understand like why she like theoretically why she could or why she like why is the sixth life where she became powerful enough to do so or whatever like she learned the game enough because i got the impression that she was taking infusions of blood from Wolverine over and over again, and that's why she was staying young. Wait, what? Yeah. Where the so, fuck? Yes, yes, yes. That's true, but that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, okay. okay I mean, like, go Can ahead. you clear that up? Where did that yes. happen? Yeah, so um, during the conversation with the librarian, I'm trying to find the page right now. Um, they say... Where are they? Hmm. I, I'm trying to find the page right now, but basically they're saying that, like, you know, it's really impressive how you two have been able to, like, survive for, like, a millennia, like, you know, off of each other. And, like, you know, lucky for you that you have the same blood type. Yeah. He says, oh, uh, what? He, yes. Whoa, that could have been way clear. I didn't get that at all. <laughs> it's because it's not implicitly stated. Huh. Or it's not right. Yeah, it's not explicitly Here stated, it but it's implied. Yeah, it says you've done well surviving. Fortunately, you two have the same blood type, but still, the idea of it—a millennium of depending on one another to survive—it is impressive. Right. Yeah. Huh. So that's absolutely true. Um, what I was talking about is more that everything went right enough for her to get to this point, whereas mm. prior she hadn't made much headway. I guess. Yeah. That's kind of what I took from it because, like, if you look at how, like, some of her other, like, because, like, the genocide thing, like you said, right, is like, oh, it seemed like everything was going well and then that happened and you're like, oh, shit, okay, didn't work out this time, let's try something else. And, like, what is it, Life 2 where she dies in the plane crash? Like, that's just totally accidental. Um... So like, uh, yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. That that didn't bother me. I guess. Yeah, I'm just 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 talking. Um, uh, so <laughs> <laughs> so in any event, uh, what we learn is that the librarian's ultimate plan, the reason why Moira is alive at all, and why she's alive with Wolverine specifically, is because she, if she dies then everything gets reset, which confirms that these lives do not continue on. These universes, these you know, this timeline does end when Moira dies, which is, you know, pretty wild when you think about the implications of just that on its face. But uh, the librarian has kept her alive and has uh, uh, let time move on and, and, and technology advance to the point where uh, he... And the history of humanity 
can become uh, one with the Dominion or whatever um, and allow him to achieve essentially godhood or godhood in his mind without Moira's interference. Because once that happens, as we know, the Dominion, uh, the Technarchy or whatever, is outside of, of traditional time. So they would be aware of Moira going forward and would just kill her. She would never she she would never be able to influence matters ever again because it would find her always, which is a very similar threat to the one that Destiny laid out. But if but yeah. if Moira were to die before that, then all of this would blip away and she would have another chance to save mutant them. The the polygon guys at some point in here they they mentioned that the the Dominion and the phala- the phalanx or that being yeah. exists in yeah, yeah. A, a black hole and that's why they yep. can uh slip through and kind of get around the time thing right that was powers of ten five, i think okay well, that they was, also was they, they, they kind of like allude to that too at one point where they're like um the librarian during that conversation is like well we'll go to a black hole and that's where we'll be safe oh, and we can great. get outside of existence basically yeah yeah because in, in, in five it's like a giant concentration of, of of information where like all knowledge and and physical matter condenses to basically zeros and ones yeah yeah so uh of course that is incredible and it speaks to why moira is so um well, this is information we learn later, but Moira's obsessed with the idea of, 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 of fixing Professor X and Magneto to a certain way of thinking, manipulating them, because this situation is incredibly dire. And um, she's aware that she's running out of time. She's on her 10th life at the point at which you know we get involved as readers. And um, she knows that all this with... with you know, mutant infighting and mutants fighting humans and all of that is completely irrelevant. That stuff just buys time for what will inevitably happen later. I have a question for you guys. That's us. If if human beings melding with mutants or with, I'm sorry, with machines is inevitable, if it's as inevitable as mutants... Why shouldn't it happen? Because to Moira, to Magneto, and to Xavier, in this, in an almost, you know, in a very ironic twist of fate. Because humans, when they see the existence of mutants, they see this as a threat to their existence. So Homo sapiens, historically in X Men comics have seen Homo superiors as a direct threat to the ability for Homo sapiens to continue existing. And so they've created any means of devious ways to eradicate this upstart evolutionary race. In the same breath here, Moira McTaggart and Magneto and Xavier now, they see this Homo novissima, or whatever it is Moira allowed Xavier to see, as a direct threat to homo superiors superiority it's the same kind of thing but the revol- the roles are kind of reversed now 
Right. So I, I think to answer your your question, Sean, I don't I don't know that one is like more or less right than the other, but I think that like to me, I'm sympathetic to the mutant cause because mutants are a natural evolution of mankind, and because of that, they're systematically persecuted. You know, um, it's like I don't think the the human beings are wrong to want to try and like, you know, like I understand that fear, I guess, but the whole point is that either way they're evolving into something else like homo novissimo or whatever it is are, are is yeah. no different than all humans evolving into mutants like either way homo sapiens the homo sapien way of life ends so like do human beings evolve into the next natural stage of their evolution where they're more close to human culture and society? Or do they merge with machines where, like, Hickman specifically calls out on that page, the problem with that is that there are two different, like, at that point, this species is, has left the regular evolutionary line and merged with machines and that there's always going to be... Um, you know, like, there's always going to be friction between the way that machines evolve and the way that organic beings evolve. So, like, the evolution of humanity to mutants from Homo sapien to Homo superior is, like, I, I would argue, like, the right stage in evolution because it's still, like, it's humans it's developing powers, right, rather than becoming something that eventually, like, the whole, the librarian has pause because the next age of their evolution is to give up their humanity hickman seems to posit that this 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 trend towards singularity is and it's clear based on how this future unfolds and what moyer has determined that it's just another inevitability that it's just what's going to happen what i think is interesting because my first thought when i read this kind of binary uh application of the two things we know about the future is that humans will continue to follow this next stage of evolution with Homo superior, and they will willingly submit to more um, technological-based evolution where it's no longer uh, involving its environment around it. What I, what my question is, what if Homo superiors? then do what Homo sapiens did and embrace a technological evolution into something different. You broke... That's the only outcome we don't know what happens. We haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I, uh, can I ahead, can Tim. I just take my own swing? Yeah. <laughs> I also wonder I also wonder at what point do the humans stop being humans? Sure. That's a great question. So if you're going it, you know, just by this diagram, if you if you have humanity in the middle of a fork, and humanity's next evolution is mutants, but then the humans who are still humans become machines, then they're not human. So that would leave that 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 train of thought posits that humans would be left over in mutants. So the future of humanity sure. would be mutants as opposed to the machines. It's so yes. interesting that you guys see it that way because I totally disagree. 
I, 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 I don't, got I, I'm just throwing it out there. I have no fucking sure. idea. I That came from what everything Phil and Pete said. <laughs> I don't see a difference between human beings evolving into mutants and human beings evolving into homo novissima mm. because human beings create mutants by giving birth, but they also create machines, uh, obviously not by giving birth, but through creation. And to me, creation is natural. So if they're fusing themselves with machines, I don't see a difference. Both of those outcomes do eliminate humanity, but I don't think that one ultimately is closer to humanity than the other, especially when mutants do not see themselves as human either. But my thing is, I think that the reason mutants don't see themselves as being similar to humans at all anymore is because they've been radicalized. Like, I think that human like hum like mutants right the original wave of mutants are born of humans like charles xavier's original dream is to live alongside humans in peace and if you follow that timeline the natural evolution of humanity would then that eventually all homo sapiens would become homo superiors right or there'd be an exceptionally small number of non-powered humans and that is a natural evolution of humanity. And I think that, like, in that case, if the if the um, initial, like, development of mutants, right, wasn't met with hate and fear from Homo sapiens, like, it would just be the natural passing of the torch evolutionarily of our species, you know? And that, like, you would still have elements of human society and culture, like, evolving into a new mutant culture. Whereas with Homo uh, Novissima, I see it as different because the if the end natural result of that is assimilation into this god consciousness, that's not humanity. You know, like that's not a natural evolution of humanity. That's humans melding with machines and like giving up individuality and individual thought and physical being to become something else. For me, yeah. it's the individuality. I think that's where I sort of lean that being the, the the thing i'm gonna make a last statement on this and then i want to talk and then i mean obviously you guys can respond but then i want to talk about the book again um human whether or not mutants deny well, okay mutants eventually if you play it out right because we only get to see what happens one side one-sided if you play it out i'm pretty confident that at some point mutants will no longer acknowledge humanity because they're not human and yes they came from that but do we acknowledge what we came from as humans not really um because I mean, listen i was created by an all-knowing god and made from the rib of one guy two thousand years ago so i don't know what you're talking about gotcha um i think that you know, it's hard to deny that that's that's what would happen if we if we played it out. We've only ever seen uh, the earlier days of mutantdom. Um, so similar to how Homo novissima has denied humanity and obviously does not is not interested in humanity. The earlier uh, issue where um, I think it's uh, Nimrod the the Nimrod the Greater. The the the. Mm. Yeah. Uh, he he says, you know, glad to be done with all of that. You know, um, it implies that we've that that collectively, uh, you know, humanity, if you will, has moved beyond humans. And I think 
the same thing would happen with with mutants because they're not human. Uh, and again, I don't see a difference between a human creation outliving and erasing humanity on one end, and then a human creation, which would be the melding of machines and, and humans, outlasting and outliving humanity in the same way. It's just, to me, it's just, I don't see a difference between those two things. Uh, and I, I, I think, I think that's. I'm glad you said all that because that's that's extremely. I think, I think Hickman is trying to allude to that as well. Um, I, I think. I think I think you and Pete very eloquently set up the kind of metaphysical debate that Hickman wants to provoke in his readers. It's good shit. Cool. So then let's move forward because there's a lot to talk about. And I do want to get to all of this, but we're running out of time. So we get to see what happens after Professor X initially reads Mora's mind and says, ah, um, he clearly has almost a mental breakdown. Because of what he sees from Moira. It's a lot of information, as you can imagine. Uh, thousands of years of life that he's witnessing in a flash. Um, and he keeps bringing up half measures to, you know, solve the problem or have a better shot. And, you know, she's like, no, no, none of that will work. Um, and... She she tells him we need to do something more drastic than what you've ever dreamed of. Uh, and I love that because with that and with the journal, which we're going to talk about next, you can clearly understand how Professor X gets where he is when, when we jump into House of X. He's been radicalized. He has been uh, manipulated. He's not the same good-spirited you know, happy guy who just wants unity anymore. And it's not necessarily because of something that's happened to him. It's because of what Moira has let him know about what happened to her or what she's seen. She, you, Hick, the, what is so good about Hickman's dialogue, and it's such a stark contrast to what we just read in Event Leviathan, is the way he dialogues Moira McTaggart, it sounds like a person who has lived a thousand years and is going through a uh, political groundhog day. And you just, you see it at the end, but specifically with what you're talking about when, when we're on the bench at X-Zero and she says that you never change and he takes it as a compliment. The way she's drawn with this stoic, fed-up expression, and she just says it's not a compliment, it tells you everything you know. I think that one panel sets up everything that comes afterwards and everything that we've read in the last 10 issues. Yeah, I totally agree. And to me, that cast out all doubt to me that there that this is not this Charles, that this is not our Charles, you know? Um, but he's just been to like radically changed he's a totally different person now they all are i i still have a problem i guess accepting that nothing occurred to take him from the charles that we know to the charles that appears in house of x because 
this moment happened like a long time ago. And everything that we've seen from him since in X-Men comics, you know, in the 80s or wherever else, those things really happened. So if that's the case, why did he tr- why did he do all the stuff that we know will lead to failure? Then why did he even bother? We're led I, to believe he was working behind the scenes with Mora and Magneto, but what was the point if he already knew it wouldn't work? I have a couple of answers to that. Yeah. Uh, early, earlier on, I can't remember. I think it was when they visited, when Xavier and Magneto visited Sinister. Uh, Magneto, uh, no, Charles does mention something about putting in fail-safes so that he himself will also be able to recall something whenever he needs it or forget oh, something whenever he yes, needs it. Yes, yeah, yes. Uh, I would also point out, uh, just according to the, uh, the, the polygon timeline of, of Moira's lives, um, they say that... Let me find it. In her fourth life, Moira allies herself with Charles and is at his side for most of the familiar X-Men history we know until the mutant race is eradicated by the Sentinels. In the fifth life, she radicalizes Charles into building an army instead of the school and still sees the mutants eradicated by the Sentinels. So I think it... I think to answer your question, I think it's sort of just just a fact of i think the idea is that x-men history as we know it has been fat different facets of the life that that is the impression that i've gotten from since that was revealed in house two and it'll be interesting to see if that's like outright confirmed or denied but i kind of feel like at least as a reader, like I feel like that's the implication we're supposed to get. I think that's what that's what Hickman is kind of putting down. Whether or not that is canonical is another question. But that's kind of like been my head canon with it as well. Is that like a, a, the history that we know is the failed timeline, and this is a new timeline moving forward? So then, what's the history of the X Men here? We don't know. I mean, that, there, there are ten whole lives of, of the history of the X-Men in Moira. I think the history of the X-Men is Moira. See, so yeah, is your question, what is the history of the X-Men now in this timeline? Yeah. Yes. Oh, I would say it's, I mean, it would be anything that's on the tenth life timeline. I think it goes to, you know, whatever you might consider... Uh, a time loop you know does the same stuff happen in the real world or you know how does this all affect the the main timeline outside of the x-men we haven't seen that answered yet yeah i think it's just something that we need to wait and see on i guess but um it just it just doesn't uh doesn't make sense to me and i think it's a question i really need answered uh sooner rather than later but uh, moving on, I do want to talk about the journals that uh, Mora has written. 
Which is really interesting because I could see how this would lead people to believe that Moira is the person who has been writing these entries the whole time. The info graphics that we've been reading. I don't necessarily believe that myself. Um, but it does call into question what the heck this whole thing even is. Um, but she talks about how she has these plans to manipulate them uh, and get them to sort of go down a particular road. Um, but one thing that becomes pretty clear pretty fast is that they have their own ideas for what they need to do. And that yep. those ideas don't line up with what Moira wants. And yep. for her, that's a problem. For example, um, they went to Bar Sinister without Moira's consent and yep. recruited Sinister, who she, uh, you know, is clearly aware, you know, he, he, he does his own thing. Um, she, she also, um, we also kind of get to see what, what the, what the plan was behind her faking her death, which, uh, was that, you know, she was too close to everything and too involved in the world, which brings up a point that I hadn't thought about. And I, I realized I'm bringing up two things, two different things at once. We can tackle them separately, but the rest of the mutants do not know that Moira is this. Anything. They don't know anything other than that she's a regular human who died. That's incredible. Yep. That's yeah, bad. Yep. yep. Well, that's that's what all powers and house is, man. It's setting up a lot of dominoes that you know. It's like, oh, this is bad. Oh, this is bad. This is uh, making me really uncomfortable. And like the final, you know, coda of all this is all the dominoes are set up. Now we have to watch how they fall. Yeah. So I do want to touch on the journal real quick. Um, I didn't get the impression that Moira has been writing these all along. Um, that is an interesting theory. But uh, I I definitely – so the thing you just said before, Sean, when you were like, I don't see how the Xavier that we see in this conversation becomes the Xavier we now know in House of X. And I, I felt like Moira's journal kind of filled in those blanks for me because I feel like with the context that he – gets all of this information at once and she begins the beginning of this very long manipulation over, you know, what is years and years. Um, that to me explains why we get the Charles that we meet in house. And that, that was that. So I'm interested in what your read is on that statement for me, but I also want to raise the point of while we're on these, what do you guys make of the two entries that are redacted? What They're redacted, you? so I make nothing of them. Yeah. What, what can you? <laughs> well, Unfortunately. Well, 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 there is the one part where we see a little bit, which is I'm just as bad as the... So, we'll see what that means. Yeah, uh, so to the point that you made, Pete, um, because we don't have timeline as far as like years uh, for when these for when these entries were made. Um, it's hard to say. However... There are some clues. Okay. Where you can try to establish some time. Uh, so if you look at the timeline that we were given in House of X number two, um, if you guys want to just take a second to pull that up, it'll be helpful. 
but on the the what is it the second part of it um they mentioned the Moira Xavier Magneto schism right is when Moira is 47 so in house of x uh, or sorry powers of x or 10 6 there is the what is it it is entry 52 re magneto we have lost magneto so this is i'm guessing the schism so entry 52 is at age 47 and entry 5 where is is the first conversation that they have so you can kind of like fill in some blanks there and start to place like to get a general sense of the timeline, right? Like this is a mission that began. When does she recruit Charles on the timeline? Hmm. Well, at any rate, uh, there's there is like there is a little bit that you can do to fill in the gaps here to see that this is taking place over the course of years, not months. Yeah, but that that's I, I know that. Um but that <laughs> that that's the problem. <laughs> that that's the the problem is that for all those years of events that we know took place, he's still doing the same stuff and it doesn't work. The schism between him and Magneto, uh what caused that? Oh. I assume what happened? Did you guys read Entry 57? Yeah. I read obviously. all the entries, yeah. <laughs> What are we here for? Well, that's the that's the <laughs> first time that's the first time they create uh, a, a, a husk? Yes. So, oh, jeez, hang on. <laughs> okay. We're here with you. Um... So after, I mean, after that, Magneto's back, right? I guess so. Yeah. So something heals the schism. I guess so. Yeah, something something does. And again, there's a lot of missing information. The only point huh. that I was trying to make, and I, I'm not trying to reiterate myself, I just want to respond to what Pete said. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, it's, I, it's I just saw that, and, and, and it hit me like a lightning bolt. <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> Some level of what we know to be the history of the X-Men has to have happened in t- Life 10 because there's too many things that rely on you having knowledge of the X-Men for them to make sense. Why do Jean Grey and Emma not have a good relationship? What's the beef there? Like, there, there's definitely things that happened in Life 10 that are the history of the X-Men that we know. And so for that to be yeah. true, why did Xavier decide he was going to start a school doing the same thing that he knows doesn't work because he already saw it? Why, like, all these things. Why does Magneto start the Brotherhood? Why do they clash so much when they're on the same page for so many years before the schism even happens? That doesn't make sense to me. That's completely valid. I got no answer. Uh, well, hopefully someone has an answer down the road, which the only man who could is Hickman. Um, but again, I really, really want to want to get through this because we, we got to go. Um, so the other major thing that we do learn here in this issue is that Moira is very, very afraid of destiny. 
And I loved that implication. Destiny's dead right now. I'm not sure why, like where she died. Um, I'm sure that's something that some X-Men aficionado knows. Um, I don't have that knowledge. But she's dead, and Moira does not want her to be resurrected. She explicitly states there can be no precogs on Krakoa because they will see her, and then that'll be a wrap. What a house of cards. Right? Yeah, I, I that was uh, a really cool reveal, I think, because I I totally agree with Kale in terms that I think Moira is one of the characters that has had the most heat in this story. So, like, to see her, this character who has so much knowledge and so much power where she's like, no, like, this is the one thing that I'm afraid of. This is the one thing that could mess up all the work that we've done here. Right? That, like, it really seems like we got momentum this time, guys. Don't fuck it up. And there, we already know that they have the history of, like you said, going against what she wants and against her knowledge. And including Mr. Sinister. Or making this deal with Mystique, even though we know, we know, we know, we know. Okay, but are you going to do it at some point and fuck everything up? Because that's kind of what it sounds like. You, and you could tell she knows they're gonna. Right. So it's like... So you're going to put her off for as long as we can, is what he says, right? Okay, so what happens when you can't put her off anymore? You going to kill her? Or are you going to give her what she wants? I I actually have a a whole different theory than that. I think it's very uh, perfect that the character who wants Destiny back is Mystique. I also think it's very perfect that that, uh, Sabretooth is the character who was sentenced to hell. Because... uh, Mystique and, S- and Sinister, uh, or Sabretooth, Jesus, obviously have a relationship, and Mystique is the only character on Krakoa who can look like anyone. So I think that she will make herself look like Professor Xavier, that she will have Sabretooth release, Sabretooth will cause chaos, and in the meantime, she will recruit the five to bring Destiny back because she wants her back, and once Destiny comes back, she will immediately realize Moira is there, and she will tell everyone. Who knows? Who is Destiny? You th- Go ahead. Destiny is the... What? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> really, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Twelve issues deep. It's all good. Destiny is the character who was with Mystique when she she realized what Moira's powers were. And Moira was working against mutants in, like, Life 3. And she, Goldface. And she, yeah. And she told her, hey, listen, live your life right, work in support of mutants, or I'm going to chase you in every life that you lead, and I'm going to kill you every time. If you're lucky and you do things right, you'll get an 11th life, but that's about it for you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, 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 okay. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. Old-ass character. So that's my theory there. Um, Into it. Unless she's the one... I'm not looking at it, but what if she's the one? What if she was? Never mind. I got nothing. Go on. All right. Uh, I was gonna say, what if she's Sabretooth and she's the one stored away? What the hell? And I was like, that's stupid. That doesn't make sense. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's entirely possible also that they already resurrected her and she's somewhere else. Um, that's true. But in any event, I want to close this conversation. Art's great. We all know it. We all love it. It's fantastic. Yep. I'm sorry we don't have more time to talk about it. I want to close this conversation with asking you guys, do you feel like this issue is a good close for the series? 
And are you still as excited going into X-Men number one uh, as you were when you read House 6? I got to say yes and yes. Mm. I got to say no. Okay. I was more excited with House than this. I think I think my expectations with this were higher. I was hoping for a, a lot more. And we got a lot, but I was hoping for a lot more. I didn't want a lot. I didn't want a lot. I I hate when things are spelled out for me. And I was actually worried that this issue would just be, here's everything that's happened! See, I kind of felt like that's what it was. I don't... I, I don't, because I, I think what it did was... In, in the way Sean put it, it's the house of cards are set. Uh, we have enough context to see where things stand, which is fine. There's progression. There was something cleared up, and now that we know that the X to the third power timeline was Moira's sixth life, which uh, illuminates why no matter what, they always lose, even in the distant future. And now we see how this all unravels. This sets up the dawn of X first wave here, I think, and and um, I am I am intrigued by it. We'll see how it goes. When things splinter off in six different directions like this, it's it's going to be difficult to see how it goes. I'm I I am confident that what Hickman's going to do in the Central X Men book is probably going to be very good, though. Pete, do you feel like you got? The fullness of what you wanted to say out there? Uh, I would just say that I definitely agree with what Phil's laying down in terms of uh, this This tied off all of the threads that I had le- like in this event of like what I felt I needed to have closure. And I now feel like I understand all of the characters' motivations. I get where they're at. I get what the stakes are for mutant kind. And I understand where every one of the books that they've announced fits in the reality of the X-Men right now. The question moving forward is like, you know, will all six of those titles capture and maintain my interest? We'll see, right? Like the art is going to be totally different. I think Hickman, like to Phil's point, what Hickman's doing is probably going to like maintain momentum and and at least will keep me. Uh, Lord knows if I'll follow the other five X books, but as of right now, like, I'm very high on the X-Men and I'm excited for the direction that they're moving. So, like, I want to read all those books and I hope that I like all of them. If I don't, obviously I'm not going to keep reading them. Like, that's just not how I consume media. But I would be really surprised if at least what Hickman's doing in this space doesn't, like, I don't stick with it for the foreseeable future. Because right now, like, I feel like this event fired on all cylinders from beginning to end and it landed the plane pretty elegantly and like i'm excited for what comes next which i going into it i didn't know that i would be i figured i'd enjoy the event i didn't know how i was going to feel about transitioning into a monthly book after the fact yeah i i want to preface what i'm about to say with the fact that i am extremely excited for what's coming and i have enjoyed every single issue of this immensely and this is honestly if you consider this to be an event which i'm not sure that i do but if you consider it to be an event, then it's probably the best overall event that I have read. Um, but again, I'm not sure I consider it to be that. 
Um, I have questions still, which is okay. I have no problem with having questions, but I have questions about some things that are making me a little bit uneasy going into X-Men number one. And I don't know where I'm supposed to look. So I'm going to buy all the books regardless because I would regardless. But I'm going to desperately miss one centralized book to read that will allow me to follow the story of the X-Men overall that deals with some of the secrets and things that are behind the scenes of everything that is being put forward. So the X-Men characters, the X-Men as a as a as a brand or whatever, they're going to be out there adventuring. You know, each of these books we already know what they're about, the pitch. Which book am I supposed to read that's going to redact these messages of Moira's entries, right? Which of the books should I read that's going to give me the information about what happened in the intervening time between the meeting with Professor Xavier and Moira and now? You know, um, there's so many questions at large still. Um, and I really wish we were going to have that book. I don't feel like X-Men number one or X-Men in general is that book because, at least from what Hickman has said, that's the advent- that's the action adventure title. So, Which is the book that's going to deal with uh, Professor X and Magneto and Apocalypse going and doing that political summit? Well, that happens in X-Men. But that's okay. not what X-Men is about. X-Men's about. Right. Okay. So uh, I think the, the good bet is that X-Men will deal with a lot of that stuff. And I'm cool with that. And I'm all in on the ride. I just have so many thoughts and questions. And I'm excited to have them answered. I wish Powers 6 did a little bit more. But I still think it was a fantastic issue. Finally, we know what how, what Life 6 was. I'm happy to have that question out of the way. And I think we can go into X-Men number one with with fresh eyes and a clear vision for what's supposed to come. And they all lived happily ever after. Yeah, right. I love that House 6 gave us that ending. And you can live with that if you only read House or whatever. But Powers gives you the the underbelly, like the nasty bits. Yeah, yeah, man. Quickly, Sean. Powers is nasty. Sean and only Sean, because uh, you asked us this last last time. Did you get any uh, sort of uh, inklings on uh, Apocalypse at the end of Powers? Did any of this shine anything new for you? Well, uh, no. But okay, never mind. End it, the show. It <laughs> it did it did spawn a thought in me that I forgot to share, and I want to share real quick. Moira knows. Apocalypse, Magneto, and Professor X intimately and probably better than they know themselves. So in a way, Moira is the most dangerous person in all of Mutantdom. Because she can she can play this anyway. If she decides that she doesn't like where Professor X and Magneto are going, she could saddle up with Apocalypse again. She knows how to get his bones rolling. She knows what excites him. And, I know, listen. And, and so I think that there's some there's something there with the way that she knows all three of these characters so well over the course of so many lifetimes. She spent the most time with Apocalypse out of anyone ever. So uh, I'll leave it there. But uh, yeah, I think I think what we do see more of Moira, it's going to be that that page with Apocalypse definitely made me think that there's going to be some friction with her because they're trying to marginalize her role, and I don't think that's going to work out. <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh man. Um, Men. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Honestly, there's so much to say about this series. So much we could say. So much more conversation that that could be had. That I'd be amazed if it didn't come up again in some form or fashion here on this podcast. But we really. Uh, enjoyed doing these 12 reviews for you guys. Hopefully you enjoyed them as well. I know this is a long one. Hopefully you guys were able to uh, listen to all of it. If you're still hearing my voice, then that means the answer is yes. And um, we're going to keep doing X-Men reviews where it makes sense and and where we're enjoying the books. This was a labor of love in a lot of ways. Uh, and uh, so stay tuned for more. Um, definitely do write in and let us know your thoughts about where Powers of 10 Number six leaves us uh, right in and let us know why this book is actually called House of Ten, House and Powers of Ten, not X. And um, let us know your thoughts about Joker movie. Still thinking about it. Still rattling around in my brain. Uh, you can get us on all podcast hosting platforms at the Comics Pals. That does include Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I get that question a lot. Um Write to us at thecomicspals at gmail.com. And, of course, on social media, we are The Comics Pals. We've got a bunch of videos up on YouTube right now. Our interviews that we did from New York Comic Con that are still rolling out, plus additional content that's not just interviews. You're going to want to check all that out, so make sure that you head over there. Watch those videos. Leave us a comment if you enjoyed the conversations. Uh, Like the videos. Share them with your friends. Subscribe to our channel for more of that kind of content. And... Click the notification bells that you are made aware of when this content rolls out. Uh, So some plugs, Pete. Thank you guys for joining us here on another episode of The Comics Pals. If you want to connect with me, I'm at loud underscore Pete on Twitter and Instagram. Come talk to me about what you're thinking about all things X-Men. I am very much looking forward to diving into X-Men number one with all of y'all next time. So, uh, yeah, let let us know what you're thinking about it. I definitely want to hear and uh, chat about your theories and your thoughts on the series so far. And uh, what your hype levels are going into the monthly books. Uh, if you want to check out more of my stuff, um, you can go follow my stuff over at loopots.com, uh, where I host our weekly Nintendo podcast, The Potscast, as well as the Patreon-exclusive show, After Dark. Uh, so if you want some more content from me and you like video game stuff, go check it out. Kale. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at TotoInto. That's T-O-T-O-I-N-T-O-W. Uh, you can find my work, as well as the podcast I do with my wife called Gone Global. Uh, you can find all that at kaleward.com. That's C-A-L-E-W-A-R-D.com. Phil. Cyborg Bebop. <laughs> as for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram only at Sean Soapbox. I'm here to talk about the X-Men because there's never been a better time in my lifetime, uh, life 10 for me, to be a fan of oh, the X-Men. That's disappointing. Oh, well, oh, you know. Sean's not as dummy thick as uh, Moira. <laughs> uh, listen, man, I'm glad for it. Uh, with that, we're the Comics Pal signing off. Take care, guys. See you next week. Did I use that right? Nope. We need a tremendous space wall to keep out the Kryptonian immigrants from coming to Earth. <laughs> <laughs>